You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So last week we had Robert Hastings. He's author of UFOs and Nukes, concentrating primarily on UFOs seen in and around nuclear installations, primarily in the USA, but also some cases around the world. And he has an incredible knowledge of everything about that. So when you talk to him specifically of anything that relates to that, he has it all. He's been studying this stuff for more than 30 years. The only concern I have about investigations of that nature, Chris, is whether or not it leads to tunnel vision. If you focus so much on your specialty, then suddenly maybe you're missing things around the periphery. Yeah, that's you know always a you know a possible kind of stumbling block. But I think in Robert's case, he's he's really grounded. He seems to have a very good objective sense about his work. He does keep up to speed, I think, in the field in general, unlike some people who tend to really, like you say, specialize and focus in on, on a single aspect. But I, I really enjoyed the show, and, and I really you know admire you know, four decades' worth of work that he's put into it. And it's unfortunate that he has his uh, Emma Woods <laughs> OCD character out there that's been dogging him. Maybe there's something to it. I think an uh, article came out last week uh, pertaining to that particular controversy of uh, this Carlson character. I'm, I'm going to start calling him Emma Carlson. <laughs> For but, those who uh, wonder I, what we're talking about here, <laughs> there's a character who calls herself Emma Woods who has been stalking UFO abduction researcher David Jacobs for several years. That doesn't mean she doesn't have a case or anything, but she's gotten so obsessive about this stalking that it destroys whatever case she might have. It really does. The whole anonymity thing really bothers me. She's put up a website. She posts on tons of boards, all under a pseudonym, all for the sole purpose of bringing down David Jacobs. Now, I don't agree, like uh, like you mentioned about yourself, I, I don't agree with a lot of uh, Jacobs' conclusions. I, I, I do have a sense that they're rather fear-based, but I don't think anybody should have to go through what he's been going through with this woman. I mean, sure, he set himself up doing hypnotic regressions over the phone, long distance, that sort of thing, but it's getting to the point of beyond ridiculousness when, when somebody is just on a vendetta to, to just slag you in every which way possible so oh well just uh much luck to hastings and his uh his emma carlson and uh david jacobs and his emma woods well jacobs told me last i heard from him via email that he was working on a more extensive rebuttal to her claims so maybe that will put the matter to rest but i kind of doubt it although things have been pretty quiet i think part of the reason things are pretty quiet is more and more forums will not allow emma woods to post until she present some authentication as to who she really is. Yeah. I mean, you can attack anybody from the position of anonymity, but you're attacking them by name. It's not two anonymous people attacking each other. And you have to think, too, what can she fear in terms of repercussions? Because Jacobs knows who she is. She has certainly identified herself to a few of the people who support her. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't (laughs) raise that hornet's nest Let's let sleeping dogs lie. But, you know, here at the PowerCast, we have our own group of house critics. In large part, we ignore them. I seldom respond to them. I don't think you have more than once or twice in your fabulous, faded career here. (laughs) I do try to stay above the fray. I try to chip in uh, my two cents wherever 
I, I think it might be appropriate and maybe give people a little little extra, you know, angle to look at a particular uh, topic or issue. But this whole idea of hiding behind avatars and anonymous names, I, I've always had a problem with it. Of course, you and I, when we post, everybody knows who we are. But, you know, you get some of these people with these with these uh, anonymous, anonymous tags and and I think it emboldens them to get out of uh, out of them outside of themselves and and be, I think, a little bit more strident than maybe they normally would. I can't recall who told me the story, but they were able to, to find out who a person was that was dogging them anonymously online, and they showed up at their house and <laughs> freaked them out. I'd never go to that uh, to to those lengths, but it is you know I'm willing to to put my reputation uh, you know in my anonymity to rest and and just be who I am and I I think more people out there should do that and this whole excuse of well if my job found out I was posted on a UFO board I'd get fired I mean that's just a convenient excuse I think we're farther down the road than having to be too concerned about that unless you're some you know lead scientist at a national lab maybe then you'd have something to worry about but for the most part I don't think people really have have uh, that excuse to to hang their uh anonymity on anymore i think it's uh this whole subject is is pretty much mainstream now and and we need to move forward and uh you know everybody step up and uh you know claim uh their opinions and and stand behind them as uh, as a real person instead of an, an anonymous avatar and tag and of course if you are a woman living in disability in new zealand do you think the paparazzi is going to basically fly across the ocean and seek you out Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, oh, man. That's got to happen. Beat yeah. the path uh, through the sheep herds to her door. Ah, well, that could be. Well, New, Zealand, also- New Zealand's up There's more sheep than humans. And I think, well, what's the saying? The, the men are men, the women are men, and the sheep are all nervous? Bad joke. I will not say anything because they claim I tell bad jokes. But the real truth is I don't tell jokes. Occasionally, I'll throw one of these old disc jockey puns out. But I do not tell jokes. I want to tell you one thing very quickly about old stuff. <laughs> or an old story. Lately, I've been coming across old friends that I knew in the early stages of my radio career, such as a guy named Bob Kite or R.J. Kite, who does now the announcing for some of our bumpers over on the Tech Night Out Live. And some of you who notice or care about these things, you notice on our theme song, we have a new voice there. But he's somebody I've known for many years, Bob Zanotti, who actually ran a paranormal radio show on a college station in New Jersey years ago. I was a guest on the show, and now after all these years, I guess he sought us out, and he graciously agreed to do those introductions for the show, Bob Sinati. Mm. He lent us his manly voice. He did indeed, and he's a professional voiceover artist, as you can tell from the quality of what he does. But he also has a great collection of the old shows that he did featuring famous UFO personalities who are no longer here. And kind of hoping that we'll get together with Bob in the very near future and get some of this stuff back on the air. I guess he has to digitize the old cassettes and reel-to-reel tape files or something. We'll get him on the air. You'll hear people like August C. Roberts, Dominic Lucchesi, and other people no longer with us, forgotten figures in the UFO field. And perhaps they had very fascinating things to say. We're also hoping to put together a show on Long John Nebel. Now, his shows go back to the 50s. I don't know if there's any copyright or heirs to Long John who might object if we ran segments on the air. We'll have to check about permissions. But I'd love to do that because I think a lot of fascinating things happen there. 
And maybe listeners then can judge fairly whether or not we've learned anything about paranormal investigations, specifically UFO investigations. In any case, Chris, you set up this week's show, and it's all I about do. a book. And the, give you, let me give you the name of the book, and then you can explain what this is going about. <laughs> it's called How the Hippies Save Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. Well, what the heck is that about? Well, uh, it's a long story, and I'm sure uh, David Kaiser is going to give us a, a really good, uh, entertaining uh, overview of this wonderful saga that's been going on, uh, still going on, actually, uh, to this day. But in the early 70s, there were a group of, uh, shall we say, alternative-thinking physicists, uh, Jack Sarfati, Nick Herbert, uh, Paul Sarag, uh, Fred Allen Wolf. It was a whole group of these guys that were real radical, sort of new thinking physicists, uh, you know, quantum physicists, and they they loosely formed a group called the <laughs> the fundamental fundamental physics group. Of course, fundamental and physics are misspelled with Fs instead of PHs and stuff. And and they they were rumored to uh, imbibe in quite a quite a, a wide assortment of uh, psychedelics as was uh, the custom at the time. And there's some question. This is one thing I want to bring up with Kaiser. Is, I mean, what role did the psychedelics play in, these, uh, in their thinking? Because they, they came up with some radical ideas, including faster-than-light communication. And uh, Subspace. It, it's fascinating. Yeah, that's going to be David Kaiser coming up next on The Paracast. I've got to tell you about this. GoToMeeting by Citrix, the way I meet online with my colleagues, has just added high-definition group video conferencing. It's called GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Now you can collaborate with anyone around the world face-to-face. -face. And I've used GoToMeeting HD Faces because it's awesome. You see the facial expressions, and that can express so much more than words. And of course, the video quality is so clear and natural, it's got the highest resolution in the industry. Nothing compares. GoToMeeting Meeting with HD Faces will make your online meetings even more personal, engaging, and effective. Plus, it's so easy to use. All you need is an internet connection and a webcam. I want you to try GoToMeeting with HD Faces. My listeners can try it free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com. Click the Try It Free button. Use the promo code PODCAST. The promo code is PODCAST at GoToMeeting.com. On the average, Americans work between 45 to 50 years hoping to build up enough wealth to retire and live out their golden years. Unfortunately, with taxation, the rising cost of food, energy, housing, and medical, many retirees are forced to live below the poverty line. Is this a flaw-free enterprise, or is our monetary unit we call the Federal Reserve Note forcing us into perpetual debt, ensuring inflation and higher taxes? These questions and more can be answered by reading G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Congressman Ron Paul states it's what every American needs to know about central bank power. A gripping adventure into the secret world of international banking cartel. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. I will give a silver dollar from the early 1900s to anyone who purchases this book. Call 1-800-686-2237 and order a copy today. It's critical that the public be made aware of the system. Call and order your copy today at 1-800-686-2237. That's 1-800-686-2237. Are you tired of spending money for metal canning lids year after year? Then stop! 
Stop buying metal lids and get Tatler reusable canning lids. Made of USDA and FDA-approved food-grade plastic, Tatler canning lids let you safely store emergency preparedness foods for years. Traditional metal lids are single-use throwaways that contain BPA. But Tatler canning lids are indefinitely reusable and guaranteed to last a lifetime when used as designed for home canning and contain no BPA. Tatler lids are dishwasher safe, perfect for standard pressure or water bath canning, eliminate food spoilage from acid corrosion, fit standard mason jars, and are proudly made in the USA. Place orders by phone at 877-747-2793 or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's 1-877-747-2793 or go to reusablecanninglids.com. That's reusablecanninglids.com. Tatler Reusable Canning Lids, the original since 1976. If you're concerned about radiation poisoning from Japan in the air, water, or food and can't find potassium iodide, go to RestoreYourHealthNow.com and choose Liquid Zeolite. Liquid Zeolite is hands down the best product to remove radiation from your body and safely removes toxins, heavy metals, boosts energy levels, and promotes a strong immune system. For fatigue, muscle weakness, headaches, memory loss, influenza, joint pain, or toxic radiation poisoning, use Liquid Zeolite from RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Liquid Zeolite is so powerful it was used to clean up contamination in Chernobyl, yet so gentle you won't even know you're taking it. Liquid Zeolite comes with a money-back guarantee but is only available at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Learn how to get free bottles of Liquid Zeolite at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. That's RestoreYourHealthNow.com or call 800-880. 9976. Call 800 880 9976 today and learn how to get free bottles of liquid zeolite. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Get in on all the action at forum.theparacast.com. Hey, we're back at the Paracast with Gene and Chris, and it's my pleasure to announce uh, and introduce to the audience our our today's guest, which is David Kaiser. He's a MIT graduate, and he's written a very provocative book that I read a review of the book. And, and David, I just instantly knew that we would just we should get you on the show and talk about this. It's a little bit outside of our normal purview, which is uh, the paranormal. But uh, when you look at, at people like Jack Sarfati and Nick Herbert, these these guys are <laughs> they're pr- pretty paranormal in their own way. So I, I thought that this would be a good opportunity to open up uh, our subject matter on the show and get you on. I really enjoyed the book; it was very entertaining. You were able to take pretty complex subject matter and present it in an easy to understand layman, uh, you know, for for the average layman. Uh, there's a little math in there, but nothing, you know, it's not rocket science. Just the whole way that you were able to present this this wonderful process that these gentlemen went through, these scientists went through, uh, and are still going through uh, to some to some extent. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, later on in the show, what some of these gentlemen are up to. But uh, why don't you give us a little background on yourself and uh, tell us you know, a little bit about yourself, but also how you became involved in uh, writing this book, uh, How the Hippies Save Physics. 
Sure, I'd be glad to. I should start off with a, just a quick correction. Actually, I am, I'm not an MIT graduate, but I do teach there now. So I'm trying to make more MIT graduates. But anyway. My so bad. I, I want right to ask now. you a fast question then. We have a controversy in the paranormal <laughs> field about a guy named Philip Imbrogno who claims he went to MIT. Did you ever hear uh, of him? Uh, I haven't, but that's, that's not conclusive either way. Well, they haven't yep. either. That's the problem. Go ahead, please. I see. <laughs> okay. So I was just going to say that, you know, right now I, I am a professor at MIT. I teach both in the program in science, technology, and society, and also in the Department of Physics. And I, I came to this topic, the way the, the book really got started was, you know, as a, as a kid, as a high school kid, I was an avid reader, popular science books. I wanted to read everything I'd get my hands on about modern physics. And among the many, many, you know, kind of uh, paperbacks that I got really excited about as a kid, one was uh, Fritz F. Copper's book, The Tao of Physics. That book is probably well known to many of your listeners. Runaway, amazing, you know, international blockbuster bestseller these days. It turns out that's not how it started out, but that's certainly where it is today. And so I read that book as a kid. And to be honest, I wasn't all that excited or really into the kind of Eastern spirituality side. But I was really enamored of his explanations, his introduction to ideas from relativity, from quantum theory. And that book really, really stuck with me. When I got to college, I got really excited about the notion of Bell's theorem and quantum entanglement. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it in some detail uh, later on. But that was the the sort of quantum weirdness, the, the notion that quantum theory is painting a picture for us of the world that just seems so out of whack with our intuitions and with what we're used to. That was really captivating. I mean, that really grabbed me. And then in grad school, I was working on my physics dissertation. I had the opportunity to do uh, a benchtop experiment on entanglement on, on Bell's theorem. It turns out uh, the very first version of that experiment uh, was done uh, by a physicist named John Clauser. And when I did a little more digging, it, it turns out Clauser had done that experiment in Berkeley in the 70s. Fritz F. Copper, who wrote the Tao of Physics, uh, was also in Berkeley in the 70s around that same time. And in fact, they knew each other. They were both members of this of this little weird kind of eccentric ragtag group. They call themselves the Fundamental Physics Group, and that's the group that I really focus on for this book. So it, in looking in hindsight, you know, there are many kind of you know arrows along the way that led me to to this group and to try to to write that book. Well, first of all, you know, Bell's theorem really does play an important, it's a pivotal uh, subject in the book and in these uh, uh, scientists' process. Why don't you give us kind of a layman's thumbnail sketch of what Bell's theorem is so our listeners can understand how these guys were, were so uh, excited and inspired to, uh, to work in this realm. Sure. Bell's theorem is one of these you know, quintessential examples of, of just quantum weirdness. It's, it's on a level with Schrodinger's cat or, you know, you name your favorite um, weird thought experiment. So Bell's theorem is named for physicist John Bell. He published it in a really totally obscure journal in 1964, got completely ignored um, by physicists for a long time. But the group in Berkeley that I write about, they, they were among the earliest to really pick up on this and get excited. So Bell's theorem seems to suggest that quantum particles that have interacted at some point in the past uh, in all kinds of actually pretty mundane ways, nothing fancy about it, that they can retain a kind of connection with each other, even if those particles have moved arbitrarily far apart. So what it seems to imply is if we sort of tickle a particle here, we make some measurement on an electron, completely mundane, straightforward thing, it should make its partner particle dance instantly, instantaneously, even if that particle is, you know, a galaxy away. It boggles the mind that these two things which are no longer in contact with each other, they stopped interacting 
long ago, and yet they can retain this almost like a kind of telepathic style link. At least that's when people struggle to put those equations into words, they come up with words like that. There's a weird connection between them that is really not like what we would see around us, at least in the ordinary ordinary world. So uh, Bell's theorem is one of these examples where the quantum world can just depart really quite radically from our expectations. So, so this is really a bell rock sort of foundation to quantum entanglement, I think would be the term. In, that- in fact, that's right. That's basically synonymous. Bell's theorem nowadays is often known as quantum entanglement or non-locality. These are all basically pointing to the same idea. Well, what uh, about it? I mean, how, let's, let's start kind of at the beginning. Why don't you give us a sense of who, who these uh, the, the phys- fundamental physics groups were, who the individuals were, and uh, kind of let's, let's set the stage a little bit about the, the times uh, <laughs> around that, uh, the Bay Area. These are wild and woolly times, and these guys, uh, I, I don't think... Uh, I think it's safe to say that they were um, quite uh, psychedelically aware. They, uh, I'm sure they were doing uh, uh, psychedelics like uh, most people uh, of their age at that time. Um, why don't you give us a, a sense of, of how this group got together, uh, you know, the struggles that they had in the beginning uh, of their process, and uh, sort of give us a sense of, of the, uh, you know, of the, the landscape there. Sure, yeah. You know, the... Um the group that they formed, they called themselves a very playful title, the Fundamental Physics Group. They spelled physics with an F. They're clearly having a good time. And it really had a core of maybe eight or ten members. The group would, would uh, the, the weekly meetings would grow or contract. It could be as many as 40 or 50. But there were only about eight or ten of them who kind of saw it through every week for about you know, almost four years. So it was a long, long-running, informal, but long-running group. And like you say, these were basically folks who were largely down on their luck at the time. They uh, had almost all of them had completed PhDs in physics from some of the nation's most elite, you know, premier graduate programs. These were incredibly well-trained, smart physicists, you know, places like Columbia and Stanford and Berkeley and Illinois and, you know, you name it. But they had finished their training uh, just when the bottom fell out of the physics profession. It was an incredibly hard time to get anything like a kind of standard job in physics in the early 70s. At one point in 1971, for example, there were more than a thousand young physicists registered looking for jobs and 50 jobs on offer, a thousand to 50. I mean, we're talking, you know, the, the market had just fallen through the floor, a kind of a speculative bubble had burst. It's like a Bernie Madoff kind of scheme, you know. Before and, we go uh, on, I wanted to just mention here, it seems like we're reliving that experience today because the bottom has <laughs> fallen out. Today, you have people with advanced degrees today who are lucky to get employed at a fast food restaurant for one of the it, same we, reasons. Yeah, That's right. And so we, we've gone through these boom and bust cycles actually a few times in, in recent history, the last few decades. I and want to get into this as we progress through our segments of the show. Our guest is David Kaiser. Yes, he is a professor at MIT. You can find his name on their site. It's real. This time, we got somebody from MIT. (laughs) The co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy, a thrilling story. Attack! Attack! 
of the Rockefellers is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Ready to save? Then you're ready for the Super Summer Sale at Herbal Healer Academy. Herbal Healer has been the leader in quality natural supplements for 23 years. Log on to HerbalHealer.com and take advantage of Herbal Healer Academy's incredible savings on 500 parts per million colloidal silver. The best pharmaceutical grade available at all sizes on sale. Super Male Plex with you Himbe and Super Femplex Plex for summer toning. Buy glucosamine chondroitin 60 caps, summer sale priced at only $12. Colon Enhancer 250 caps, summer sale priced at just $18. And if your brain's a little foggy, we have a great supplement on sale called Memory Power. Log on and hit the postcard specials link for more super summer savings at HerbalHealer.com. As always, new customers get a free catalog with first order. Herbal Healer Academy, healing the world with nature one person at a time. Before you throw away your used batteries, you need to listen to this. Now, going green can save money. Go green and save money by giving life to your used batteries by charging them with the Renaissance Charger. The Renaissance Charger uses a new revolutionary battery charging technology that effectively extends the life of new batteries and gives new life to used batteries. Invented by legendary audio genius John Bedini, this unique and patented charging system rejuvenates the electrochemical plate structure in the battery without additives, increasing capacity and maintaining cell integrity. Renaissance Charge offers a full line of products made in the USA for all types and sizes of batteries. Find out why our customers tell us the Renaissance Charger is the only battery charger they will ever use. Save your money. Save the environment. Visit us online at r-charge.com. That's r-charge.com. Or call us at 208-772-4514. That's 208-772-4514. Be a part of the revolution today. You can't argue with success. And many people have found great success in fighting back colds and flu viruses with Ali C, the world's best garlic extract. So now, it's time to get even more success with the other great quality natural products from Affinity Health Products. Like C Energy Liquid Vitamins, Lose and Snooze, and the One Day Diet. Or Human Growth Hormone Support, Menopause Specialist for Women, and Joint Specialist. See these and many other quality Affinity Health products for men and women online at AffinityHealthProducts.com. That's A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y HealthProducts.com. Or call in your orders at 877-888-7126. That's 1-877-888-7126. Trust your health to the makers of Alley C, the world's best garlic extract. Affinity Health Products, the finest and most innovative natural health products available. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hello, this is John Burroughs, one of the witnesses to the Rendlesham UFO incident. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. We're back. Gene and Chris talking to David Kaiser, professor at MIT, author of, and let me give you the full name of the book here, How the Hippies Saved Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. And right now he's talking about 
this culture, this group of scientists who couldn't get a job because the bottom had fallen out, I guess, of the business. And we recall also people like Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist. He reached a situation where he couldn't find employment except as a UFO investigator. So, David Kaiser, you could have become a UFO investigator. You didn't, though. <laughs> no, not this time around. Not in this life, anyway. But it's true that the, the folks I, I focus on for the book, they, were, they, they had to make a different way in the world. They couldn't just do what their teacher's generation had done in terms of you know, the, the expected routine. You get your Ph.D. from a good place. You get a good job. You do you know, mainstream research. Through uh, no fault of their own, this, this generation and members like this Berkeley group, they were really just caught off guard. And so what amazed me about the story is they, they found each other through different ways. They kind of bumbled along, and the roads led them to Berkeley. I always joke, if, if it's 1973 and you've got time in your hands, might as well go to Berkeley. It was a great, amazing place to be, as I'm sure we'll talk about. And once they got there, through different ways, different things that brought them there, they pretty quickly found each other. And they found kind of like-minded people who were incredibly passionate about about modern physics, about what it might imply, about where it might lead, who, who had seen those questions really kind of denigrated in their formal training. So they were trained to be extremely good with their calculations. They, they could sling the equations around with the best of them, but they hadn't been encouraged. And in fact, their coursework had really, had really dis- discouraged any of the kind of philosophical, interpretive, what does it all mean kind of stuff, you know? And that's what this group was really hungry for. And they figured they had time on their hands. They weren't punching the clock anymore. They found each other. They had had this kind of shared interest as they formed this very informal but very kind of spirited group, uh, the Fundamental Physics Group, and they met together uh, every Friday afternoon, and they'd arrange for some speakers, they'd have kind of brainstorming sessions, uh, and sometimes uh, they would truck on down, bring the whole show down to the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, about 150 miles south of San Francisco, right on the coast, you know, breathtakingly beautiful setting, and Esalen, as as I'm sure you know, was famous um, even at the time for a kind of incubator of the new age, right? All things New Age or, or occult, whether it was Eastern mysticism or psychedelic drugs or yoga, which once seemed very radical, vegetarianism, things that, you know, some of which now seem actually pretty straightforward. Uh, and it turns out the single longest running seminar series in Esalen's history was actually on quantum mechanics and the nature of reality, these, that these physicists that, I'm, that I wrote about were organizing every year for uh, the better part of two decades. It was, that was, you know, was, was hot stuff at Esalen around the hot tubs and all the rest. So these, these folks were carving out a kind of parallel universe for themselves uh, to pursue these questions that had, that had really fallen out of favor or fallen out of the curriculum for mainstream physics. So why don't you give us a, a sense of some of the early uh, thinking that they, uh, they bounced around with each other and some of the early attempts at, uh, at creating hypotheses and then uh, doing the work that it would take to, uh, to prove them and get published. Sure. So, you know, one of the things that really mesmerized uh, the members of the group was Bell's theorem. We were just talking about a moment ago, this notion of quantum entanglement of particles that could be separated in space but still share this kind of instant connection. And they were among the earliest physicists anywhere in the world to take that seriously. They weren't the only ones, but they were, they were we might say, the early adopters. Go back and look at who published articles on Bell's theorem during the first 15 years after Bell's original publication, and they're dominated by, by members of this group. Um, so not exclusive, but clearly you know, in the game early. And, uh, and these folks were worried about entanglement, about non-locality, about how quantum theory violates our ordinary experience. But they also, some of them, were also curious about would this help explain other kind of strange 
phenomena around them. And this is where I think it matters a great deal that they were sitting in the Bay Area in the 70s as a lot of stuff was getting attention and kind of in the air. And uh, one topic was, for example, um, Yuri Geller, the Israeli performer who then began to, to claim that he had genuine psychic abilities. He was whisked to the United States for careful scientific study. One of the first places he went to or was brought to was in the Bay Area, the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI. It was a defense contractor laboratory that had only recently been spun off from Stanford University. So ordinarily they did you know, tests for the Pentagon or some private industry. And all of a sudden there was a group at SRI again, sort of with time on their hands during this, this low point in, in, in the physics profession. And they began studying people like Geller, and in fact, many other people, to see now, if they had um, you know, mind-reading abilities. Did uh, they actually other... come to any conclusions, positive or negative, about these alleged abilities? This is very important. They, they did. They came to the conclusions. They didn't sway everyone who tried to listen to them, but they were convinced. These are physicists uh, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, and in fact, there's a whole group there at, at one point. They got uh, you know articles into some of the most prestigious peer-reviewed journals on the planet, like the journal Nature, Proceedings of the IEEE, the, the Electrical Engineering Association, uh, where they, they were conducting you know, experimental tests, laboratory tests under what they considered you know, carefully controlled conditions for people like Geller, and in fact, I say many others, names might not be well known today, uh, of things like what we might casually call mind-reading, telekinesis, these kinds of things. And so uh, this was getting press not only in kind of a hip underground, you know, countercultured scene, but also front page news at the time in the San Francisco Chronicle and other you know, kind of mainstream newspapers. And so these physicists that I wrote about who were in Berkeley, you know, some of them were reading about this stuff. They got incredibly excited. It, it began, they began to wonder whether this mind reading or, or telepathy or, you know, ESP type stuff Maybe that was uh, an instance. Maybe that could be explained by this weird quantum thing, like like not non-locality or entanglement. So maybe you know they had an extra. Some of them had an extra impetus to worry about the kind of grand meaning of quantum theory because they thought it could account for even wider ranges of phenomena, like these tests at SRI. They got really uh, invested in that. Well, at the time, I mean, uh, phrases like uh, counterfactual indefiniteness and non-locality, yeah. hidden states. These were really difficult subjects and, and terms to. To communicate to people, even even people with you know uh, extensive education, and these guys were uh, <laughs> they in in their own sort of uh, <laughs> I think unique way. Let's put it, uh, got involved in in, in in really trying to communicate these subjects. And one of the things that I've it's always struck me is you know how SRI uh, Targ and Putoff got started, and of course the early experiments with uh, Yuri Geller and Pat Price, and then later Ingo Swan. You didn't mention this, but this then uh, gradually kind of morphed into the whole remote viewing uh, project that then actually raised quite a lot of eyebrows, uh, especially in the intelligence community and the uh, in the military. And, and and these guys seem to swirl around this whole sort of cauldron of of creative thinking and ideas. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, <laughs> one of the real I think uh, leading figures in this whole uh, physics group was of course uh, Jack Sarfati, who. <laughs> is uh, quite a character. He's still out there. Um, I, for a scientist who supposedly is doing, uh, you know, some pretty heavy-duty physics work, I don't know how the heck he has time to fire off several hundred emails every day. And I've yeah. unfortunately been the recipient of some uh, <laughs> rather strident emails from Jack. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd like to get Jack on 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 the show at some point, and he has uh, surprisingly agreed to come on the show so we can we can dig into some of his war stories, but. 
I mean, these guys were really, I mean, they were walking the walk and talking the talk. I mean, uh, several of them actually had jobs as like dishwashers and just, uh, you know, they did anything they could to get by. Uh, why don't you describe some of these figures for us? Uh, Nick Herbert, of course, uh, Sarfati. Why don't you give us a little thumbnail sketch on these guys? Because some of the photographs I've seen, I mean, they're, they look like something out of Star Wars. Or <laughs> yeah. You know, they, I should say, so each of the people I wrote about, I guess almost all of them, are still alive. Uh, you mentioned Jack, Safadi, Nick Herbert. The whole the whole group, in fact, I think they're flourishing, and they were extremely generous uh, with their time for me as I was working on the book. So I got to know them, you know, at least pretty well. Did you get uh, a chance you, to, like, hang out with them, or is it mostly email and telephone? Bit, a little bit. I mean, uh, so I had a, I spent the better part of, you know, a really fun day in San Francisco with with uh, Jack Sarfati and Fred Allen Wolf uh, while working on the book, uh, John Clauser you know, had me over at his house for a really very lovely whole long day and, and uh, you know, follow-up interviews often by telephone and email and all the rest. So these folks have really been uh, very kind and, and other physicists I write about as well, uh, Logic Zurich at Los Alamos Laboratory and others who are not into the kind of counterculture scene but who play roles in the book and they also were you know, just extremely generous. So We have David I, Kaiser and the book is called... How the Hippie Saved Physics. Well, they certainly did a lot of unusual things. We'll learn more about them. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I had already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Local Army Navy surplus stores are hard to find these days, but not military-issue supplies. They're right here online at MainMilitary.com. That's right, just like the state, M-A-I-N-E, Military.com. We have everything for true, total preparedness. MainMilitary.com is not a typical website. It has much more than your old surplus store. Quality military-issue survival gear like canteens, mess kits, utensils, gas masks, filters, and chemical suits. Magnesium fire-starting tools, strike anywhere, waterproof, and storm matches. First aid kits, splints, tourniquets, parachute 550 cord, military manuals, sandbags by the bail, and a huge Molly assortment of vests and pouches for every need. Call 207-989-6783, 207-989-6783, or visit MainMilitary.com. That's M-A-I-N-E, Military.com, the main name in military supply. OpticsPlanet.com is where discerning gun owners and outdoorsmen go to gear up. OpticsPlanet has the best selection of rifle scopes, red dots, night vision, holsters, bags, and tactical gear on the planet. With always low prices, free shipping on most orders, and expert customer service. Go to OpticsPlanet.com slash GCN to get a free gift with purchase. That's OpticsPlanet.com slash GCN or call 800-332-OPTICS. 
800-332-6784. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. Energy, energy, and more energy. We all need it. Get the energy you need quick through the powers of wild forest extract. Wild chaga and birch bark are the secrets of the forest used exclusively by Russian athletes. Wild chaga is the world's top source of superoxide dismutase, the critical enzyme that blocks the aging process. Chaga is good for your heart and even helps support healthy arteries. Wild birch extract is the top source of betulin, a natural sterile needed by every cell of the body. And healthy cells mean a healthy body and a more powerful you. No wonder it's known as a king of all herbs. Experience real energy and power like you've never dreamed possible. Take Chago Charge Tea with Wild Birch Bark every day and Chaga Max capsules to get the energy you need. You deserve it. Order today by calling 877-817-9829. 877-817-9829. That's 877-817-9829. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. G-C-N. Great talk radio starts here. This is Hilly Rose, and I hope that you do listen to the Paracast, because you will learn a great deal about the paranormal. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg on the Paracast. David Kaiser, who's a professor at MIT, and is talking about a group of people who hung out together in San Francisco, the hippies, how the hippies saved physics. Now, the title, Saved Physics, is it because of the cutting-edge research they discussed? How did they save physics? It is. I mean, I, I intended the title to be actually kind of playful, a bit ironic, kind of tongue-in-cheek, um, which is like, I don't think any small group of, of individuals, you know, saved the entire discipline. So it's, it's meant to be playful. Nonetheless, I mean, this group uh, on the margins and really, as you said, down and out, some of them living hand-to-mouth, incredibly passionate about their work. And they really did, you know, stir some pretty amazing developments. All of them were amazing given their kind of, you know, professional platform at the time. And so I don't think they saved all the physics, but they did a bunch of stuff that, is, that has had lasting value to this day. And when I started piecing those things together, I said, you know, there's really a book here. And so we were starting to talk before, you know, who are these characters, uh, people like Nick Herbert and Jack Sarfati and Fred Allen Wolf might be known, names known to some of your listeners. Uh, Elizabeth Rauscher was at the time a, a graduate student, a, a young mom raising a, her, her son, uh, was just able to go back to finish her PhD when her child was old enough, you know, to go to kindergarten, really, you know, not easy times. And uh, she was subject to really uh, quite horrible uh, gender discrimination of very, very few women physics students, uh, even as recently as the 19th. 70s, and so she had she didn't have an easy time of it. Uh, Saul Paul Sarag, who's an amazing fellow, he was basically um, 
I, listen, I'm not, I, honestly, I can't remember if he finished his undergraduate degree or not. He did not go on for graduate training, partly because he dropped out of Berkeley to go pursue theater. He was cast in the original Broadway production of Hair, if you can think back to that. Couldn't we scrounge up the cash to meet the actor's equity fee, went back to Berkeley to study more physics. I mean, these are amazing people and pretty cool characters. Uh, and Saul Paul, through basically self-study, managed to publish a several physics articles in, again, the most prestigious peer-reviewed journals in, in the land. So these, these people combined an, an amazing passion for quantum theory and its, and its kind of weirdnesses with an interest in all the kind of buzzing, blooming, occult, new age stuff that was getting uh, especially a lot of play in San Francisco and the Bay Area in, in the 70s. And they were playful. They, were, they didn't take themselves too seriously at times. Uh, and it was just a pretty, pretty amazing bunch. Well, to have, have seminars at Esalen naked in hot tubs, <laughs> you know, that's just kind of, uh, that's kind of wacky, uh, to, you know, just listening to me say that. But uh, one of the things that, that you really, uh, you spend a, a bit of time in the book talking about Nick Herbert and Jack Sarfati's attempt at, at faster-than-light communication. And, and this was fascinating to me because basically what they were trying to do is take the principles that Bell laid out in his, in, in his theorem and take non-locality and actually uh, utilize it as uh, an approach to uh, faster-than-light communication. Let's talk about that a little bit because it was an incredibly difficult process that they went through. And I know Nick Herbert spent years attempting to, uh, to prove his hypothesis. And, and why don't you give us a, kind of a thumbnail on that? And maybe sure, before yeah. you answer the question, David, consider the phrase that came out of Star Trek, subspace communications. Is that what it was about? Subspace. I'm not sure what that would be, actually. I'm not sure. That was the concept in the Star Trek universe. In the Star I Trek did. universe in the 1960s, how did they communicate with people light years away? Well, of course, they didn't have to explain it. It was all subspace. I see. Well, maybe that was the inspiration. I don't know. But it, it certainly is It's equally strange, I mean, what these folks uh, were up to or were after. And so, I mean, just to, just to pause for a second and say, faster than light communication, what that really would imply if one could make it work, would be receiving a message before it was sent. We're talking about all the causal paradoxes, all the kind of troubles with relativity that that would imply. And so what, uh, what certain members of this Berkeley group, especially at the time, uh, Jack Sarfati and Nick Herbert, they were really intrigued by the possibility, which is to say, Bell's theorem, this incredibly uh, beautiful result from quantum theory, not getting much attention yet, except from folks like, like the ones I write about. It seemed watertight. In fact, group member John Clauser had done the very first laboratory tests. It proved that this entanglement seemed to be a real thing. It wasn't just, you know, flights of fancy. And it implied this, this instantaneous, faster-than-light connection between two particles. And that seems to butt up against, that seems really to sit poorly with the other great pillar of modern physics, Einstein's relativity, which seems to put an absolute speed limit, an upper limit on how fast anything like information or force or anything else could travel. So here you have the great, you know, the great smackdown of modern physics, right? Is quantum theory going to be incompatible with relativity, or will there be some, some unusual and kind of hidden union between them? And that's the kind of thing that these folks are after, uh, people like uh, Nick Herbert and, and Jack Sarfati. And so they came up with increasingly really quite ingenious designs, so thought experiments for devices that maybe really could use quantum theory to, to basically violate relativity, to send messages before they could be, or I should say, to receive messages before they were sent to go faster than light. And so you're right, in the book I have a long chapter on the kind of cat and mouse game, as I think of it. You know, the, the two of them um, would, would come up with, uh, would hammer out a cool idea. It, it would often get you know, hashed out first in these informal group discussions by the fundamental physics group. 
they'd put them down on paper. Jack even filed uh, patent disclosure forms at one point, thought he could maybe patent a device. Nick Herbert wrote up his own uh, preprints and set them on their way. And then a, a small number of other physicists all around the world, some of them in the United States, some dotted throughout Western Europe, would get their hands on these kind of underground preprints. There were all kinds of interesting uh, ways they were connected. Uh, and they would think hard about them, and that some of them would find the loopholes. They'd find the sort of no-go theorem, why that actually would not be able to operate as as claimed. And this went on for, as you said, for years, in fact, for, you know, increasingly ingenious patterns or plans, and then increasingly subtle reasons why they actually would fall. And with each of those, these were kind of revelations that had not been known before about the deep structure of quantum theory. Physicists were learning about things they didn't even know about from in the, in the effort to kind of debunk or, or poke holes in these, um, in these cool designs. And so, uh, and, and from that's partly where the, the saving physics in the title comes from out of that uh, really quite playful um, spirited back and forth came some absolutely critical insights um, into physics that um, that are at the sort of page one of our textbooks today uh, they go by names like the no cloning theorem the no signaling theorem quantum limits on amplifiers I mean, these are foundational results that are now at the bedrock of a multi-billion dollar industry like quantum encryption and they they were discovered by the kind of constant playful smart prodding and, and hard thinking uh, by people like uh, Jack Sarfati and Nick Herbert, and then the, the handful of, of their kind of interlocutors, people like Wojcik Zurich and Bill Wooters and uh, Dennis Deeks and others, Giancarlo Girardi. So there, there was this kind of really attenuated communication pattern between the kind of really uh, hip, playful Berkeley group and a few other kind of increasingly mainstream uh, physicists who were, who were paying attention. Cutting to the chase, David, is it possible to have what we call subspace communications or communications at faster than light speed so someone who's exploring another star system can call home and they get an answer right away, not 50 years yeah. from now? when ET calls home. So um, to the best of my knowledge, the answer is no. I think most physicists would say no. On the other hand, uh, I'm not going to endorse these plans, but serious people you know, have, have given serious thought to, they continue to, to that question. And so it, could, it wouldn't surprise me if the effort to get even, even more wacky, cool ideas today would A, not work, but B, be sort of clarifying in, in the quest, much like it had happened uh, before. And so um, quantum theory, if, as we now understand it, seems not to allow these things to happen. Is quantum theory the last word? You know, there are all kinds of legitimate reasons to ask about extensions beyond quantum theory or, for that matter, relativity. So given what we know now, I think the answer really is no, we can't do it. Do I think that'll never, ever, ever be possible? You know, that's, that's a much harder bet to, to place. Of course, I have to ask then about the logical connection, warp drive, hyperdrive, or as they used to say, engage. So can we engage warp drive? They're talking about that, aren't they? Some of the folks are today. So, as for example, people like Jack Sarfati have uh, been working very hard on sort of, uh, we might call them exotic theories of, of space-time, or worrying about, or, or even does Einstein's general relativity allow for exotic states and so on. So again, it's not that um, uh, I at least haven't seen a, a winning example yet, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be working on it. And that's, that's, that's I think, the larger point of the book is that we need these people, we need all kinds of people to be pushing and pushing on the boundaries. What seems, what seems just maybe barely possible? Because just in clarifying, even if it's impossible, you know, we're, we're going to learn something. And often we'll learn pretty surprising and, and amazing things. But isn't that part of doing scientific research that today something is impossible? 
but tomorrow we find a way to do it. That's the way it's always been, hasn't it? That's exactly right. In fact, one of the favorite examples that, that these folks used to trot out even back in the day was that uh, at one point John Wheeler, a very, very uh, prominent, eminent physicist, um, uh, who was in very frequent contact with the Berkeley group, um, at one point he called one of their ideas moonshine. Uh, and they thought that was great because that's exactly the word that was used before World War II to explain to to dismiss the notion of what would become an atomic bomb. You know, a Nobel laureate nuclear physicist had said that's you know uranium fission is just moonshine. And, and I'll tell you what, we'll drink more moonshine or the Kool Aid or whatever it is with David Kaiser. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you'd like to listen to GCN programs on the go, I have great news. GCN has created a Droid and iPhone application, and it's free. Just as easy as going to GCNlive.com, click on the banner, and download. Before you know it, you'll be listening to your favorite hard-hitting GCN shows, live or on demand, right on your Droid or iPhone, 24-7 and on the go. So download the Droid and iPhone app free by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Thanks again for listening to GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit and carding to a private bank, having it lent back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. We continue amazingly, even though it seems like only 30, 40 minutes have passed. We are in the second hour of the Paracast with David Kaiser. We're taking a quantum leap. Through time and space. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. So looking here at what these hippies discovered, what were you doing, by the way? Parenthetically, what was David Kaiser doing in the 1970s? <laughs> Mostly watching Saturday morning cartoons. I was a pretty young kid. So, you know, I, I, I joke in, in the book, I, uh, I guess in the acknowledgments, I say I, my memories of the 70s are hazy, but not because they were clouded, you know, by psychedelics, because I was, you know, like a toddler. So um, I was slowly, you know, trying to learn about the world, but uh, in a different way than the folks I write about. So I guess if you remember the 70s, you were, you were either too young or... Um had spent too much time in the 60s. Uh, <laughs> an interesting uh, little uh, side note here is Jack Sarfati is going to be at the DARPA NASA Star Drive Symposium in October, and I believe he's going to be presenting some sort of paper addressing uh, his concept of negative energy-powered starships. So uh, he's, he's still Mr. Outrageous. He's still uh, out there pushing the envelope. So uh, kind of keep your, keep your eyes open, listeners, for uh, word on on his paper and if we can get him on the show he's agreed to get on we'll uh, maybe get into that a little bit uh, the whole concept of negative energy to me I, I mean you know I guess your average new age would cringe thinking oh my god negative energy powering the starship <laughs> so by the way is that antimatter negative energy uh, no it's not okay. it's uh, it's different we can't build dilithium crystals my arm? <laughs> we can't build dilithium crystals I'm so sad <laughs> Metamaterials, uh, Andrew says. I'm here with Andrew Pofferman, who is a uh, software engineer for many years at Cisco. 
he was uh, uh, one of those rare individuals that was actually accepted into Oxford University when he was 16. So he's uh, he's a bright guy, and uh, he's uh, busy uh, writing down up a couple of questions and, and comments uh, as we uh, as he's listening to us uh, uh, do the show here. We should and, bring uh, him on for a few minutes. I'll see if I could twist his arm and get him on here. But uh, like he's been week. working for 12 uh, over 12 years with. Uh, uh, on the Woodward effect, are, are you uh, familiar with that at all, David? Uh, the, the Machian uh, general relativity and uh, Mayor uh, Millis's, see, what does it say, BPR number one choice? So I'm, not, I mean, I'm familiar with, with some of the work on Mach's principle and relativity and some efforts mm-hmm. to, uh, get to explain um, the origin of inertia. I'm, I'm not familiar with, with, uh, with the things you, you mentioned just now, though. Yeah, so what's Woodward's first name, Andrew? Yeah, James T. Woodward at Cal State Fullerton. Andrew's been working with him uh, uh, really closely for quite a number of years. On uh, it, it's called frictionless pr- propulsion, I think, pr- propellantless propulsion. So uh, maybe, maybe Woodward and uh, Sarfati might uh, compare notes at one time. But let's get back to uh, to our physics group, and and we were talking about Nick Herbert's uh, multi-year attempt, and, and with Sarfati's help and the physics group's help, to come up with a uh, design for faster-than-light communication, which ultimately was shot down. Even though he did get a, a paper published, I, if I remember correctly, uh, it was, as you uh, alluded to, it was sort of uh, proven to not be a workable, a workable uh, hypothesis. What, what were some of the other early experiments that these guys were doing before we had, uh, of course, the famous uh, success of the Dow Physics and the Dancing Willie Masters from two of the members of the group? Uh, why don't you uh, kind of give us another sense of, uh, of what some, some of the other areas that they were working in? You know, one, one uh, device they actually really did build, uh, Nick Herbert built with another uh, friend and colleague, they called the Metaphase Typewriter. This, again, was a, a, just a, a marvelous example of the kind of playfulness built on some real, earnest, serious thinking. Um, and it's, you know, it was a delight to, to learn about. So uh, part of what really intrigued these members of the group was this question of consciousness. That's a lot of what they were after. And one question in particular was whether consciousness could have an effect on sort of steering quantum events. That's to say, uh, and that goes back in some sense, at least inspired by some ideas, uh, speculations by Nobel laureates like uh, Eugene Wigner, uh, which again, and, and uh, John Wheeler, which had not really been getting much play in the mainstream physics world, but these folks uh, really wrestled with them. They picked up on them. And the idea was, could, could human consciousness, or maybe any consciousness, um, kind of steer, could it alter the underlying probability distribution for seemingly random quantum events? Um, and Wigner had ideas to suggest that maybe consciousness is what uh, he would have said collapses the quantum wave function or plays some crucial role in quantum measurement. And that was, you know, it, it's, it's a legitimate thing to be asking about. And these folks were, were curious about that. And so Nick realized if it's really consciousness and not, say, brain chemistry in a physical fleshy brain, then it needn't be restricted to the person sitting next to you. What if it could be spirits, you know, from the other side and so on? So basically, these guys wired up a pretty cool um, device in the 1970s for a kind of 1870s you know, phenomenon to worry about spiritualism or getting, um, using a kind of spirit medium to hear from, from uh, spirits from beyond. So they did this, and they did it many times, and among my favorite examples, they had a big party on the centennial of the birth of Harry Houdini, famous magician, uh, and they wanted to see if Houdini's spirit could somehow, the consciousness could, could steer the kind of probabilities for quantum events, in particular if it's, say, like the, um, 
the radioactive decay of, of a, a thallium sample. So the, each decay should be a random event, but with an average half-life. Uh, and so the question was, could a consciousness like, say, the spirit of Harry Houdini start, you know, sort of speeding up or slowing down, uh, changing from the average um, likelihood of given radioactive decay? And if so, could that be used to sort of rat-tat-tat out like a Morse code message? So they hooked this detector, Geiger counter, up to a teletype machine, and they got a, a, a paper from the National Security Agency on the letter frequencies in the English language, how common is the letter E, how often does it appear with the letter D, and so on. And they wanted to do it really very carefully and scientifically. Uh, and they wondered, you know, could, when they hooked up this Geiger counter to the teletype, would they only get random noise, just jumbles of letters, or would there be intelligible messages in there? And they called that the metaphase typewriter. So that's an example of, <laughs> among many where these folks were, um, as, as Nick, I think, later recalled, it was at the very least a good excuse for a really good party. Uh, and, um, and there was a, a way to celebrate Harry Houdini, think hard about quantum theory and consciousness, and have, you know, have a, a good time. So they were, you know, that's, I think that captures the spirit of the group. It, this was not a throwaway. I and mean, they were worried about alternative explanations for the measurement problem in quantum theory, which is like, you know, remains a huge big deal problem, even for, for mainstream physicists. Uh, and they wanted to sort of show, highlight just, just how weird the quantum universe really is in a very playful, very evocative way. Well, what did, what did Houdini have to say? <laughs> uh, opinions different. So Saul Paul Serag, whom I mentioned earlier, wrote uh, a really lovely kind of fictionalized account, a short story about the metaphase typewriter. It appeared in this uh, magazine called Spit in the Ocean, uh, which was at the time edited by Ken Casey, the Merry Pranksters. It was in a special issue edited by Timothy Leary. Uh, and so in Saul Paul's fictionalized account, um, they, they see this string of letters at the back that says basically, and in an infinite time, as if Harry Houdini was too frustrated. It was, this was too slow a device to get his thoughts across. It's like when I try to text on my cell phone, it takes me an hour and a half. So I guess they, they, in the story, you know, Houdini's spirit was saying, I'd love to chat with you fellows, but this is going to take too long. Uh, that was fictionalized. However, some people who were there claim uh, that there was a, a, a string of characters that, that was recognizable in the midst, again, of kind of random noise or, or a jumble of letters. And that was the letters that would spell out by Jung, B-Y-J-U-N-G, and some claim that was just as a lab tech was walking by with a, a copy of the portable young, you know, in her, in her pocket. So, you know, some of them will say, look, you see, others will say, you know, monkeys on typewriters will type out Shakespeare. That's just a random fluctuation. But, you know, at the very least they were, they were, um, they were going to explore the foundations of quantum theory and, you know, like I say, have a good time. One question I have here, which is something we can explore as we continue with this episode, and we are going to have to do our break very shortly. The question I have here is, for regular, normal people, what technology did these people develop in the 70s that we could recognize today? I'm not talking necessarily about quantum entanglements, but things that people could buy in the store. Anything? Well, sure. And one technology was the popular book. I mean, some of these, uh, the best-selling books of that generation uh, were written by members of that group, uh, like the Dial of Physics that I mentioned, like the Dancing Wooly Masters by Gary Zukov. Uh, Jack Sarfati and Fred Allen Wolf wrote one with their friend Bob Tobin. They really helped jumpstart the whole genre called Space, Time, and Beyond. And in fact, there were you know, about a dozen of these books uh, that came out. So that's one way that they were getting the message out literally into the hands of, of soon to be you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask you more to flesh that out in our next segment with David Kaiser. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> 
Have you been sitting on a few great domain name ideas but haven't locked them in for yourself? Good. Now you can buy them through the number one domain name registrar, Namecheap.com, as voted by the top tech blog Lifehacker. Just like the name says, you can buy domains cheap, as low as $2.99. And every new domain comes with WhoisGuard, our special privacy service, free for the first year. Now that you know, it's time to grab those domain names before someone else does. Namecheap.com. Go now. Namecheap.com. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Again, the Congressional Budget Office sounds the alarm, this time warns of Greek-style U.S. debt crises. You heard me right. The GAO is drawing a parallel between the U.S. economy, its debt, and the current Greek economic meltdown. With the debt-to-GDP chart climbing into unfamiliar territory, the growing budget deficit will rise to unsupportable levels. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. The Federal Debt and Risk of Financial Crises document the CBO has published is a must-read for every American, covering the risk of continued deficit spending coupled with an aging population and the rising interest rates spell economic disaster. It's imperative that you get a copy of this document and study it for yourself. Call me today at 800-686-2237, and I'll send you a free copy. Again, call 800-686-2237 and ask for your copy of the CBO document. Once again, you need to read this government report. Call 800-686-2237. The American people think they live in a constitutional republic, land of the free, home of the brave... Right. Just try those lines on the judge when you get a ticket or have to deal with a big bad IRS. Instead, use escapeharassment.com. Since 1972, our volunteer group of researchers and educators have successfully taught how to escape tickets by law, and it works. Escape harassment has three different steps to follow, depending on where you are in the ticket process. Learn how to escape tickets, IRS, or court proceedings before you go to court. For free, three-minute pre-recorded information and FAQs, call this toll-free number, one 877 9009. That's 877-457-9009. Or go to escapeharassment.com and see our money-back guarantee. That's escapeharassment.com. Remember, escape harassment works. The food storage industry leader has done it again. Introducing FDG Clubs and Survival Bucks from the Freeze-Dry Guy. For over 39 years, the Freeze-Dry Guy has served various government agencies and the private sector with the finest in storable foods and emergency rations. If you've wanted to build emergency food supplies but couldn't afford it, now you can. Go to freezedryguy.com, click on products, and look for the Freeze-Dry Guy Clubs to pay as you go. Now you can build food storage without going into debt. Choose from a payment range of $95 to $450 per month. Our clubs work with everyone's budget. Plus, when you join Freeze Dry Guy clubs, you'll get additional rewards. For example, this month, get 10% back in survival bucks on all purchases in the Freeze Dry Guy product line, plus free shipping within the lower 48 states on any order amount. Hurry, go to FreezeDryGuy.com or call 866-404-3663. That's FreezeDryGuy.com or call 866-404-3663. The Freeze Dry Guy, the best you can buy. 
America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you want to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out on iTunes. We have David Kaiser, and he is a professor over at MIT. We're talking about those wacky physicists, hippie-type people from the 70s with Gene and Chris and the Paracast. So the other part of the question is, of course, they came out with books, best-selling books. What about consumer electronics, other products that we could buy? In the stores, anything they develop from all this research? Yeah, none that I know of. The main one, like I said, that I trace in the book is is helping to lay the the, the theoretical groundwork for these very uh, very fancy devices today, like quantum encryption. But those are the ones that I know of. I remember most of these uh, members of the group were theoretical physicists. Uh, they worked with some laser physicists like uh, Hal Puthoff and Russell Targ. But for the most part, they were theorists who worried about the kind of structure of the equations and, and what it might mean about the universe. And so they were, their thoughts were going more to, to the, we might say, ethereal realm, you know. Well, um, I have a question here. Now, you know, we're talking about their influence and, and, and possible uh, developments that were inspired by these guys. Andrew uh, mentioned that the, the perhaps the premier quantum uh, mechanics researcher is Anton uh, Zeilinger, uh, who's an Austrian physicist. To what extent do you think uh, you know modern cutting-edge uh, uh, physicists are have were influenced by these guys, and uh, do we see some sort of influence now in in the modern physics world? Uh, did they help loosen up the field a little bit, get people thinking more creatively, or what? What is their legacy really now in in modern physics? So I think in the narrow sort of tight focus, they do have a legacy in these very specific results uh, that I mentioned before, like the no cloning theorem, no signaling and quantum limits to amplifiers. And those are technical developments that really are kind of bedrock for, for a whole flourishing field today. And again, it's not that the folks I write about uniquely found those things, but they really had a, a major hand in, in pushing that whole uh, program forward and often you know, designing the, the devices in the debunking of which you know, these insights would appear. So they were they were clearly there. And those, I think, are, you know, they're, they're incredibly important developments that, that we just didn't know about before these folks got in the game. And then if we zoom out a little bit, you know, these folks were the early adopters on Bell's theorem more broadly. I mean, they were the ones who said before, long before this was at all common for physicists to even pay any attention to, that quantum entanglement is baffling and probably really, really important. They, as I write in the book, they rescued that topic from a decade of, of obscurity. They forced it onto the agenda for at least a few other physicists in addition to their own. And so they helped to kind of get it back into the mainstream or, or, or get a few people really excited about it. Uh, and then if we zoom out further, you know, they wrote those books, like I mentioned. Uh, they really inspired uh, a whole genre of popular physics writing uh, and getting a lot of this stuff out into, into the public, some of which, in fact, it, this really surprised me, actually, some of which got used uh, in formal physics classes in the classroom as a kind of proxy uh, textbook before the regular old textbooks caught up with the new stuff about quantum theory like 
Bell's theorem. Books like the, like the ones we mentioned written by these folks or formal lesson plans that were published inspired by those books, you know, by physicists who were, in, who were talking with them pretty regularly, you know, they, they had a kind of a, a direct pedagogical impact in the classroom that, uh, you know, that, that is, was important in the era before these, these sort of slow-moving textbooks could catch up. So we can sort of zoom out from a tight focus to get broader and broader. And again, it's not like these folks single-handedly changed the world. I don't think any small group ever does. But they were, they were really having an impact. They have a legacy that if we know where to look for it, we can start seeing some of that signs of it even today. Now, one of the topics often discussed when we talk about the word quantum is quantum computing. Now, is this such a thing possible? We're all living in the world of ones and zeros, the digital world. Is this really the next stage of computing? I, you know, I, I have a feeling it really is. It's not the area of physics that I work in directly. I have a, a number of colleagues who do. They're really smart, and, and they, they make a good case. And I think there is some. I mean, there are working prototypes of sort of low capacity compared to anyone's laptop on their desktop right now on their desk. But these things are, are taking advantage of this fundamental quantum property, things like superposition or indeed entanglement in Bell's theorem, that are being you know, literally wired in from the start. And these folks can keep these things, you know, they have to put them in cryogenic coolers, they have to treat them with great nimbleness so far. But nonetheless, they've built a few of these things as well as worked out incredibly complicated and sophisticated you know, um, theoretical descriptions. It's so, not yeah, something I that I can buy at the Apple store next year. Not yet. No, it's not. It's not going to be in the iPhone 5. Are these things practical? Do we see that five, ten years from now, if we can figure how to get a handle on it and we don't have to live in cyrogenic laboratories and stuff, that we can take this stuff and actually use it? in products for space exploration and then ultimately the consumer world. Yeah, that's definitely the intention. And so again, it's, I, I'm not an expert uh, on the nitty gritty of it these days, but I know that's, that's certainly what's driving a lot of this excitement. Whether it's going to be 10 years from now or 20 or 50, I think it's certainly, you know, odds are good it's going to be coming. Well, what direction is quantum physics going in right now? What are the exciting uh, papers that are being uh, you know, published and what's, what's the buzz uh, going around the field right now? I think there's a lot. I mean, by now, quantum physics is central to, to virtually everything that physicists want to work on. So there are different aspects of quantum theory, or it shows up as relevant in different ways. So whether it's nanotechnology, which is basically pushing single atoms around, that's clearly you know, deeply involved in quantum theory, which was the subject for which quantum theory was first designed, you know, for understanding single atoms or, or just a small number of atoms. So the entire you know, humongous elephant of the room of nanotech is basically putting quantum theory to work in one way. And you can go from there all the way to the opposite scale and look at quantum cosmology, closer to, to an area I actually work in, in physics. You know, the excitement about string theory or trying to quantize general relativity, the excitement about the universe, the multiverse, are we, are we one bubble among an infinitude? Those are all making, you know, um, taking advantage of weird properties of quantum theory sort of in a different direction. So I think pretty much anywhere you look these days, quantum theory is going to be incredibly central, and, and its sort of inherent wackiness is, is coming to light. Well, we know in, in, in ufology, for instance, uh, we, do, uh, we do cover that subject quite extensively uh, on our show. One of the things that you uh, occasionally will hear uh, is someone that, that does not buy in lock, stock, and barrel into an extraterrestrial hypothesis for you know, what's behind the UFO phenomenon. And you hear buzzwords like uh, uh, that they're multidimensional. Is, based on our knowledge right now, uh, which is probably in a dimensional sense pretty limited, but do you think that there's a possibility that we may be visited by the denizens of some other dimension? Is that a, is that a possibility, uh, you as a scientist? 
you know, I, I wouldn't discount it as a possibility. I also wouldn't rate it as a very high possibility, but that's just could very well be limit, you know, my own limited imagination or knowledge. So we could we could unpack that. I think about doing like a Drake equation for, for the version you just described. What's the likelihood that the universe that we live in has extra spatial dimensions? You know, the likelihood of that is actually, I would say, higher, better reasons to believe that now than even, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So that's a pretty big change, or at least better reasons to, to worry about it, to think about it. It has very specific motivations that put it on the table now. And so if that increases the overall likelihood for the rest of your scenario, you know, that's, that's sort of how the science has to, it seems to me, would, would go along. And, and more importantly, if there are ways to, to get experimental observational input on are there extra dimensions, what are there, how are they characterized, and you know, people are hoping they might catch some glimpse, it's a long shot, maybe catch a glimpse of something like that in the Large Hadron Collider that's uh, now spinning up in CERN, or maybe by a different sort of mechanism, mechanism might uh, affect the very subtle bumps and wiggles in the cosmic microwave background radiation. I mean, there, that's, again, that's a kind of cutting-edge research question to, are there extra dimensions? And if so, how do we understand them? What is, and then what, might, what else might they imply? What do they open up? No, do you think that this is uh, one of the more exciting I, periods? Chris, I got in, the break. In, Dimensionally oh. speaking, we have David Kaiser. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S. Dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Hey, Brian, if you could do just one thing today to ensure your family's food security, what would it be? That's easy, Bill. I'd head straight to SoupBeansurvival.com. SoupBeansurvival.com? I know, Bill, it sounds crazy, but this ancient secret has been around for over 8,000 years, and it truly is nature's super survival food. Really, Brian, the number one survival food? Well, certainly the forgotten survival food. Absolutely, Bill. The folks at SoupBeansurvival.com scoured our planet to find the very best heirloom seeds to truly find nature's super survival food. Brian, these aren't grocery store beans, are they? No way, Bill. You're not going to find these beans in any grocery store. These are the absolute highest quality beans in the world. Visit SoupBeansurvival.com. That's SoupBeansurvival.com for all the information you're going to need for nature's super survival food. Big Berkey water filters are in high demand. Storable foods are also in high demand. BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com has always kept our focus on the Berkey water filter products, but increasingly, our customers have been asking for storable foods. After months of research, BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com now offers great-tasting, long-lasting, storable foods. These ready-to-eat meals are packed in airtight nitrogen pouches. All you do is just add water, and because they're sealed so well, they come with a 25-year shelf life. 
combine our Berkey water filters, which are powerful enough to purify treated, untreated, or even stagnant pond water with our storable foods, and you have a winning combination. Remember, we offer free shipping on every order over $50, and GCN listeners receive 5% off all ceramic filter systems. Visit BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY. That's BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY today. You know that drinking pure, high-alkaline water is one of the most important factors in maintaining high energy and vibrant health. And most experts agree that the water you drink should be at a pH level of 8 or higher. AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops, available only at AlkaVision.com, combine a unique formula of most alkaline minerals available. AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops alkalize your water, ridding the body of harmful toxins and acid, helping you to regain your energy and health. Alkalizing your water by simply adding 10 drops of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops helps the body to rid itself of acidic waste increases oxygen, and raises the pH of your body to optimal levels. And bacteria and viruses cannot survive in an alkaline high pH environment. Order your bottle of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops for only $29.95 at AlkaVision.com. That's A-L-K-A-Vision.com. Or call 269-409-1776. 269-409-1776. Alkalize your body. Supercharge your health at AlkaVision.com. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We're back with David Kaiser talking about, I guess, cutting-edge physics, quantum mechanics, all that stuff, that way-out-there stuff. With David Kaiser, I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. Chris, before we did our break, you had started a question. Well, um, you know, I've just been seeing so much uh, in the news lately. Spokespeople like uh, Michio Kaku uh, is a, just a, a, such an, a good writer and... And, and there are other uh, writers that, similar to the books in the early 70s that came out. In fact, that's where I first learned about uh, quantum, quantum physics was uh, in the Tao of Physics and the Dancing Wooly Masters. And there, there were several other books as well. People like Michio Kaku now, I think, are, are they're so accessible and they're, they're elegantly able to relay such mind-boggling information uh, to lay people. I, I, I get a sense that quantum physics is in a real is in a real up period right now. How would you rate this uh, time period now in terms of, of excitement in the field? I definitely agree, and I agree both about uh, the talented writers now, like uh, Michio Kaku, like Brian Greene, in fact, like lots of people. Um, I think they are, they are really good at that. Uh, and even, even when they're not trying to necessarily write um, engaging books for, for non-specialists, you know, in their own offices. I think you're right. It is an exciting time. You know, one of my, my uh, colleagues at MIT is Max Tegmark, and he, you know, he, I think he'd, he'd share that as sort of wild, giddy enthusiasm, or Seth Lloyd, or all these folks. And I think it's partly for the reason I said before. I mean, when we go to the hyper-small to the mind-bogglingly large, in each direction, we're getting sort of new insights into quantum theory. It's, it's, it's leading to new questions and often to some really very fancy new experiments as well. So, I, you know, I, the, the subtitle for my book was The Quantum Revival. Uh, and I think that that was really meant to say there's, there's an exciting thing going on now. And I think a lot of physicists, you know, um, will feel that. Let me ask you a question that kind of arises from that. We're looking at all this cutting-edge science. 
How does organized religion handle all these developments, or can they? Well, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it's not the area of my expertise. I think there might be different responses from different, you know, traditions and religious communities. Um, one thing I will say is I take us off track. One thing that was interesting to me uh, was seeing the rise of a kind of anti-Big Bang fervor from some corners of a kind of creationist or intelligent design science. So some folks seemed not very comfortable or very happy with the picture we have of a Big Bang, inflationary cosmology, uh, the, the sort of mainstream view of, of how the universe began. And so some of the folks who would otherwise be spending a lot of time critiquing you know, Darwinian natural selection in biology classrooms, some of them tur- have turned their sights onto the Big Bang. So that's one example. It's certainly not the only w- example of you know, kind of religion or spirituality encountering these questions. Just to say that it's going to be a mixed bag, and I don't know, you know uh, who's giving the most serious thought to that. I, I haven't been. It's not where I um, would really be an expert. Was the impact to religion anything that they thought about when all those hippie scientists were getting together all those years ago? I see. Well, some more than others. So uh, people like um, Fritjof Capra, I think, were, were really earnestly, genuinely interested in, in sort of the Eastern worldview, a very religious, spiritual worldview, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Confucianism, and, and, and that whole Taoism uh, and all the rest. And so, so Fritjof was, he became a kind of devoted student of that. He was reading everything he could. He'd go to all the seminars in the Bay Area he could, and even when he, when he left the Bay Area. So for some people, yes, I think it, uh, religion, or at least some kind of spirituality, was central, was absolutely central to that ongoing, evolving set of questions. I'm not sure it played the same role or had the same impact, even for all members, just of that tiny group, let alone for other folks you know, at the time. So for some of them, yeah, you can definitely see that was, that was an important feature. Okay, so looking further at the impact, what about the fact that our space program has been cut down in a large way, especially at the end of the shuttle program? Does that hurt this kind of research? I don't know if it'll hurt in a direct way. I think it might hurt more in the sense of who's asking the big, weird, out-there questions and who's going to be inspired by amazing things. Um, you know, I, I don't think there was much of a budget spillover, at least none that I know of. Uh, in, in words, I don't think we cash it out nickels and dimes from one appropriation line to another. But I think, you know, the larger question of um, what's our place in the universe, what does it all mean? I think a lot of people for decades have found, you know, deep, deep inspiration from uh, the space program. And, and, you know, so we want to we want to look at those, we might say, second order effects, you know, where there we might we might indeed see an impact. Now, what is your personal opinion about this? Do you think they went about it all wrong and cutting back on the space program? You kind of think that the promise that was realized with the moon landing in 1969, you know, it was never really followed up in a huge way. It's a tough one. As a kid, I was completely enamored of the space program. My walls were covered. You know, my, my friends had, you know, like rock star posters up, and I always had, you know, astronaut and space shuttle posters up. So, you know, I, I grew up with that stuff. I built model rockets, and I'm going to try to get my kids into that now. And so, you know, yeah, I, I was definitely a kind of space junkie. Uh, and so it, it is pretty pretty sad for me just personally to realize that, you know, the last shuttle launch has now passed and so on. Um, you know, on the other hand, who knows, maybe some other, you know, exciting, cool thing will, 
will start to take its place. And so, you know, when I put my historian's cap back on, even even at the height of the Apollo program, you know, there was a lot of concern in, in this country about budget priorities, not unlike today. You know, cities were crumbling, horrible, you know, challenges. And, and a lot of critics, even back then, said, um, you know, there has to be some kind of cost-benefit trade-off. And yeah, I can at least sympathize with those concerns. It's, you know, there's, there's a limit to what we can try to do. We hear about these limits all the time these days, financially, you know, economically in this country. So it's tricky. I mean, what do we do to accomplish great things, to inspire just absolute you know, euphoria in people? which I think is incredibly important for, for asking big questions, keep, keeping people excited. But, you know, we don't have uh, unlimited resources. So, you know, that's your wishy-washy answer to say, I, I wish we could do more. I can understand why there are limits. Another question here is, can we relate any of this research to the sources for new forms of energy? Running out of oil, high price of oil, looking at all the alternatives electric cars, whatever. Is there anything in physics that we could look to, maybe an unlimited source of energy, free energy, whatever? Well, you know, so that's an idea where it does get kicked around, I would say, sort of on the margin still. I, I, I'm not convinced of that. I'm not going to say that's definitely right or wrong, but it's, I think most mainstream physicists um, uh, are, are not you know, convinced by that. But again, that doesn't mean people shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily you know, keep, keep pushing on it. So people often will, there are all kinds of, you know, um, uh, terms and jargon that will get, uh, you know, passed around in that. And again, I'll just say that uh, I, I haven't seen enough yet to be convinced, but that could be my fault and not the fault of the folks, you know, uh, working on it. Now, looking at the crazy quilt stuff that we deal with on the Paracast, obviously you covered some of that with the investigations at universities of people who claim to have various extrasensory powers. Now, if E.T. is out there 50 light years from here, does he or she or it have to spend 50 years getting here? How do they come here, or do you think they have come here? Well, again, that's a great question. So um, the first response would be to say they would probably take a lot more than 50 years because they probably couldn't travel even close to the actual speed of light. So if they're 50 light years away, it would take 50 years if they were, because as you know, if they're traveling at the speed of light, if we believe Einstein's relativity, they couldn't even get that speed. So, okay, so we're looking at, you know, decades. Uh, and then, on the other hand, you know, you can, you can ask about, ex- you know, space-time is, is, is really um, a, a, a pretty weird, fun thing to think about. And so if you take Einstein's general relativity seriously, you know, could there be wormholes? Could there be non-trivial structures? Could there be, could there be topologies in space and time that we just aren't aware of yet that could be like the ultimate shortcut? And, you know, lots of people, lots of straight-laced university professors have thought about that very hard, let alone other folks who find it inspiring and wacky and who might be more on the margins. So, again, I, I wouldn't say, no, it could never, ever, ever be shown. Because, you know, look, people like Stephen Hawking worry about uh, closed time-like paths. People like Kip Thorne at Caltech uh, have, have done incredibly sophisticated studies of uh, exotic structures in Einstein's relativity and wormholes and all the rest. So, you know, that's, again, I'd say that's, that's a fair question. Um, and one that even if the answer ultimately still turns out to be no, we're going to learn a lot in, in the process. We have David Kaiser learning a lot in the process. This is your science school where we're trying to look at cutting-edge science in a way that we can all relate to it. We have a co-host, Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast.
Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats, I can't even list them. Download now to see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. If you owe the IRS money you can't pay, then listen carefully, because you already know that the problem won't go away by itself. You can get help today from the leading tax expert in the country, Dan Pilla. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. The IRS isn't going to just forget about you. Right now, the IRS is hiring thousands of tax collectors to go after delinquent accounts just like yours. That's why you need to take action today, and I can help. I take a simple but proven approach to solving your tax debt problem. First, I stabilize collections so you don't have to worry about wage and bank levies. Next, I build a detailed plan to get your debt reduced to the fullest extent possible, sometimes even eliminated. Finally, I work with you every step of the way to get your problem solved once and for all. So call now for a free consultation. Call 1-800-346-6829. Dan Pilla will solve your tax problem guaranteed. He's helped thousands of people, and he can help you too. Call us today at 800-346-6829. That's 800-34-NO-TAX. If you drive for a living, you don't get paid to stop or wait in line. Keep your wheels moving with pre-pass. Bypass way stations. Fly by port of entry facilities. Stay moving at highway speed while the guy without pre-pass waits in line. Save time, save money. Call 888-401-PASS to try pre-pass free. That's 888-401-PASS. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget, CrossbreedHolsters.com. Heart and Body Extract continues to receive positive testimonials from people who have experienced amazing results, like Reed. I just wanted to send you a quick but a very big thank you for Heart and Body Extract. I've been on the formula for nearly a month now, and the improvement in the circulation of my legs has been simply amazing. Reed was facing a tough choice. I was facing surgery due to the severity of the 100% blocked arteries in both my legs. And my decision, waiting for surgery to say no and try heart and body extract instead, has been thankfully the right decision. And the result? I can now walk up steps without noticeable pain. Order heart and body extract at 866-295-5305. 866-295-5305. Or hbextract.com. Heart and body extract for a long and healthy life. 
The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Hi, this is nuclear physicist lecturer Stanton Friedman. You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. We continue with David Kaiser discussing cutting-edge science with Gene and Chris on the PowerCast. We're trying to keep up with him, okay? Because I didn't go to MIT. I didn't pretend to go at MIT. I've read the science literature, but, you know, we're trying to keep it at a sensible level. Okay, David Kaiser, the other question is, we're involved in all these things that impact space and time. So can we travel to the future? Can we travel to the past? Can we take that quantum leap, as they say on the TV show? <laughs> well, you know, look, we can certainly travel to the future, which is just by sitting still and letting the clock tick by. Could we, could we make a great leap toward the future? Then, then it gets more tricky, uh, and likewise for the past. So, um, again, I'd say the mainstream consensus seems to be no, or at least not yet. And yet, you know, relativity uh, continues to, to surprise us. And so I wouldn't want to say never, ever, never under those circumstances. I'd say I haven't seen it yet. Uh, and that, again, could just, be much, just as much be my own limited imagination. But, you know, relative, general relativity, uh, even, even canonical, even just Einstein's version of relativity, uh, has all kinds of amazing features. And there's a flourishing kind of industry of scientists working on extensions beyond Einstein's relativity, where even more sort of exotic or unexpected things could be possible, at least in theory. So uh, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen the great proof yet, but, uh, you know, very smart and earnest people are working on it all the time. At least I'm, I'm trying to understand that on a theoretical level, uh, even if maybe not building, you know, their own time machines just yet. We were talking about some of the current uh, buzzwords and, and, and aspects of uh, quantum physics uh, that are now currently being bantered about. Back in the early 90s, I seem to recall there was a, a bit of a, a flurry of, of interest in uh, cold fusion. Uh, I haven't heard anything about that recently. Is this a, a dead area of uh, inquiry or uh, study, or uh, where are we in that process? Well, again, you know, I'm no expert um, in, the, in what's going on most recently. I do know it's not dead in the sense that there are still people working on it. In fact, there's a sociologist of science who, who coined this the undead science. It's like a zombie that, uh, that actually won't, seems not to die. Uh, and some people <laughs> at least are, yeah, I thought that was a good, a good description. And uh, again, I'm not, I'm not going to cast aspersions on those who are doing it now. I just don't, I'm not following it. I do know there, you know, the numbers following it now, I think, have dwi- I assume, have dwindled even from the heyday that you described, uh, but it's, it's not zero. And so, um, you know, some people are convinced there's still something there. Um, how about building machines based on dark matter? I've, I've been seeing some buzzing uh, lately that there's some question of whether dark matter is even uh, real. Uh, obviously, theoretically, you know, I know how Putoff was very interested in it. I know Sarfati's been very interested in it and, and others. But uh, what is this current, uh, this new development in there where now the whole concept is being, being questioned? Well, so I'm not sure the specifics that you're referring to. I do know in general, um, there have been a lot of efforts. You know, dark matter is so um, troubling, right, to most astrophysicists because it's, it's like, who ordered that? We don't, we don't want that stuff, right? It means that, again, as as I'm sure you listeners know, it means that on the order of a, a quarter, about 20, roughly 25 percent 
of the energy balance of the entire universe is stuff that we don't have any idea what it is. And we've never detected it. We can't smell it. We can't catch it in our laboratory. We haven't yet, despite some very good tries. Um, and we have no clear idea of what it might be, lots of competing hypotheses. And so it would be great if there were no need for dark matter at all, <laughs> if it was just one grand mistake. Um, but that's pretty hard, too. I mean, again, I won't discount every effort, but um, we think we understand Einstein's relativity really, really well with, from lots of angles, with lots of sensitive tests. And if Einstein's relativity is to hold, then it really, it seems to my understanding, we really do need this mysterious missing matter, this dark matter, to make sense of the behavior of galaxies, the way they rotate, the way they um, behave gravitationally. And so it could be that Einstein's relativity is just wrong and there's some other theory we don't know yet. It's, that's always possible, right? And maybe that would make get away for, from the need for dark matter if the gravitational interaction itself would, would um, give the same result without this mysterious stuff. But, but that's... I think that would be fairly called a long shot, not impossible, but a long shot. And if we, and if gravity, if galaxies are behaving the way we think they are, the way we think we understand they should, then I think we're largely stuck with this missing, you know, this mystery of what is this stuff. And um, so before we can build machines out of it, let's just gra- let's detect some first. Let's, let's catch them really? in the lab. Yeah. <laughs> And then you then you can play with it. First, you got to prove, you know, kind of figure out what what exactly it is. Because uh, that, yeah, exactly. that's a that's a heck of a lot of. Uh, I mean, the universe is pretty pretty big place, and twenty five percent of it just still being an unknown is. Um, I'm, that must perplex a lot of people. Here's another one. Now, Andrew uh, kind of mentioned this one to me before. He was wondering if the Higgs boson uh, particle is not found at the Large Hadron Collider. What happens to the standard model? Uh, yeah. Would you define we? that for our listeners because their eyes are just glazed over? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. So, so a couple things there. The, the Higgs boson, I guess some of your listeners might know, it's often in the news these days. It's a, so far, still hypothetical particle. No one's had definitive, you know, observational um, uh, measurements of it yet, despite lots of trying. We're still trying now. So it's a hypothetical particle that really is central to our understanding of the basic um, forces between parts of atoms, between subatomic particles. It's, um, it's one of the main mechanisms that, that actually gives rise to mass. As to Why do we see an electron has a certain mass instead of having no mass at all? And so it's, it's, um, it's sort of conceptually, it seems to literally hold the whole, the whole picture together. It's the only particle uh, from that entire what's called the standard model, from our understanding of the basic forces of nature, that has never been seen. Every other piece of that standard model by now has been seen. We can you know, capture them in our labs. We can mess around with them, measure them carefully, build stuff out of them in many cases. And the one, mis- the one missing component, the one piece that we just have never, ever seen directly uh, is this, this Higgs particle. So if it is not there at all, then you can play the usual game saying, well, it must be in some different, you know, um, must have a different uh, mass than we thought. It must lie outside the range. We need a bigger atom smasher. But you, you can only do that so far because then other things start becoming, you know, uh, uh, inconsistent. And so you can't play the game too much more. Uh, otherwise, you could say maybe there just is no Higgs particle and it and it's, it's kind of back to the drawing board in that case. So that's both exciting because we'll have lots more to do and apply for, you know, for grants. But, but it's, that, would be, that would be a real big um, – I think the word shock would not be inappropriate. That would be a big, big deal if there just honestly is no Higgs. We've been thinking about this thing um, and drawing conclusions about what, stru- what properties it must have since the early 60s. 
And if, if it really isn't there 50 years later, you know, that, <laughs> that's going to be a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal, yeah. Well, you know, I've been I've been reading some uh, rather uh, alarmist uh, blogs and and articles about people really being in a place of fear about what's going on um, at CERN. And you know, you hear things bannered about like, oh, they're going to create a, a wormhole, or, uh, or they're going to create uh, something that's going to eat the Earth. And you know, there's a lot of alarmism out there. And do you think that 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 kind of thinking somehow relates to the fact that science has leapt ahead so far away from the common, you know, your average Joe out there. Joe Sixpack is sitting there, you know, watching the news. And, and do you think that there's a, an, a really increasing gap between, uh, between the ivory towers of, of science and, and the average person? And do you think that this somehow uh, can relate to what appears to be a real upsurge in interest in the last uh, couple of decades in Areas of uh, and subjects that most scientists just roll their eyes, whether it's uh, you know all these ghost uh, shows and and UFO shows and and this interest in in more magical uh, mystical things. Do you think that that's a direct result of of this this increasing gap between uh, cutting edge science, quantum theory, and just these wonderful uh, you know leaps ahead that we're, we're we're doing in terms of our scientific knowledge? Do you think that there's a relation there? You know, it's interesting. I, I bet there is. I, I bet there's other things going on, you know, in the mix as well. But I wouldn't discount it. I think I think you're right, and I, I certainly agree that this sort of increasing gap between what sort of most people can be expected to know or understand about uh, science and the kind of cutting edge. I think that I think that gap is getting pretty wide. Uh, and I think there's also, you know, there's since the, you know, the kind of um, late '60s, or should I say, the Watergate era, you know, in this country, there's been a lot less inclination to just believe what the experts are telling you, no matter who the experts are. Uh, and so I think there's a change in a kind of political culture or maybe a media culture. So it's not only we don't understand that stuff, but, you know, who are you to tell me what, what I shouldn't even worry about? And, I, you know, I can understand that, that has some, something behind it. You know, it, um, just having fancy letters after your name doesn't mean you know everything. And we've been surprised all the time before. So there can be a kind of um, concern. You know, are the experts not telling us stuff? Um, might be, might not be, uh, what can I say? That might not be a real cause for concern. There might not be vast conspiracies of evil scientists behind the curtain, but I can understand why, why people might be worried. You know, do we know everything we need to know? They tell me not to worry, but we've heard that before. I'll and tell you so, what, we have to do this break. We have David Kaiser. The book is called How the Hippie Saved Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237.
Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. This takes us to the final four of the Paracast. David Kaiser, our guest. I'm Gene. Chris O'Brien's with me. You're in the Paracast. I'm going to ask you kind of a far-reaching question here, which may or may not relate to everything. This renewed emphasis in some quarters of the political spectrum on what we didn't consider science, such as creationism, other things. Is there an anti-science movement going on trying to conserve what we knew before and forget about what we know now and what we hope to know in the future? I hope not, Gene. Yeah, I hope not. I think there are, um, I think we can find tendencies like that. I'm not sure it's so much to sort of keep us from discovering new things. I don't think that's what's driving it. I think it's, you know, I think it's politics like, like most politics. If people don't like a particular outcome or policy, then there could be efforts to to use that to decide what's legitimate to, to, to study or, or to get funding for and all the rest. And I think we saw a lot of that. I mean, real sort of obvious bare partisanship around science, quite frankly, in the earlier years of, of, this, uh, of the 20th century in the United States. And I think independent of one's politics, I think we can all agree there was a lot of political meddling in a way that we maybe hadn't been accustomed to seeing for in quite so extreme ways uh, in earlier times. So yeah, I, th- I think as I mentioned before, you know, I have a, some modest interest in um, following this kind of intelligent design or creationism stuff, partly just because it, it, sometimes it, it impacts, you know, ideas about cosmology or, or um, there's a kind of pushback around what I consider actually really very well-established ideas. And other people say, you know, that's just your opinion and you have no right to teach our children and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, that, that's still around. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, how that settles out in the coming years. One can't help but be reminded of Pat Robertson's rather disturbing comment uh, about 10 years ago where he said that UFO believers should be stoned, that the heavens are for God, the firmament is for man, yet he bounces the 700 club off satellites all over the world. Yes, yes, right, that's right. I guess you you want your cake and you want to eat it too uh, in that Mm -hmm. regard. Where are we going now? I mean, what sort of uh, breakthroughs do, I mean, I know, your, you have your own area of, of expertise in cosmology. Do you see anything on the near horizon that might be some just amazing breakthrough? Are there any areas that are particularly exciting right now in science? Well, I, I think there are a lot of areas uh, that are really exciting. You know, in my own little little universe, so to speak, my own little uh, domain, I think um, cosmology is in just an amazing place right now. You know, when I was starting out as a student not all that long ago, we could basically say with confidence that certain basic parameters of our universe were known to within a factor of two, often to within a factor of ten. That's not very precise, right? And now a lot of the same parameters are known to better than 1% accuracy. I mean, they say better than 99% accuracy. The residual errors are incredibly small. And that's happened in the space of 10 or 20 years. Uh, and that has ruled out certain ideas, that has honed others, that's pushed new ideas to the forefront. And that's only sort of still building up steam. There are new satellites and incredible instruments being launched and, and designed all the time. So in that sense, I think cosmology is a, is a growth area. I think it's incredibly exciting. We have these stubborn questions like dark matter, like dark energy, like all the exotic notions from Einstein's relativity we still haven't fully explored. And so there's, there's, uh, there's plenty of room for really fun and, and intriguing stuff in cosmology, and that's just one area. I think, I think lots of people would, would have similar excitement uh, you know, around 
I say nanotech or certainly quantum computing or all kinds of areas within the physical sciences. Well, we have a new telescope going up, uh, which I'm sure is real exciting for you and your work, uh, the James Webb Telescope, which would be kind of the next generation Hubble. What do cosmologists and, and um, astrophysicists, what are they expecting to be able to determine that's new and exciting with this uh, incredible leap forward in, in uh, spaceborne technology? So a lot of time with these satellites, you're worrying about increasing um, resolution on the sky. How finely can you, dis- can you distinguish between objects? And that's partly why the Hubble was such an amazing leap forward, to be able to see things that, that simply had not been seeable before. And the latest versions, like you say, should, should do that you know, better by factors of 10 or 20 or, or 100. Uh, same thing with these more cosmologically oriented satellites. There's a Planck satellite, uh, named for Max Planck, you know, the quantum right. revolutionary. Uh, that's already in orbit. It's not, gonna, it's not um, sort of reporting data yet, but it's taking data. And that, again, would do for understanding the very earliest moments of our universe uh, about you know, 10 to 30 times better than the best we have today. And that's where you start being able to really say, is this how the universe began or is that? And you can really start distinguishing. Uh, instead of just saying, well, all our ideas are compatible with what we can know because we have fuzzed out data, you, know, you really get down to the nitty-gritty and, and you start getting surprises. Well, also, uh, there's a possibility of actually optically being able to, uh, to see extrasolar uh, planets as well. With, well, that's uh, right. So, so extrasolar you know, astronomy, the uh, exoplanet stuff is incredible and, and getting more so all the time. That's you know, certainly aided by each of these leaps in, in technology. Uh, as well as you know, peering, these, these things are your, are your ultimate time machines. These are things that are peering back in time of uh, almost 14 billion years ago. And, and we can still take a, 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 like a Polaroid. We can take a snapshot of this baby universe and puzzle over it. That's, that's pretty amazing. So we're not going to be able to see all the way back to the Big Bang, obviously. But we're going to get pretty close, I would think, uh, within uh, probably less than a billion years, uh, if, if memory serves me correct. And again, I am not, I am no scientist. Uh, listeners, do not try this at home. Um, right. In fact, we'll get back to, to uh, roughly 400,000 years after the Big Bang, which is, say, about 13.7 billion wow. years ago. It's a long time, 13.3 or so. Yeah. The big concern here is, of course, how all this cutting-edge research is being treated, especially now where we've reached the point here where, once again, science isn't getting the grants they used to get. We're so busy cutting spending, we don't think about the practical effect. Well, that, that's true, and, uh, and it's, it is worrying. Um, there was, um, you know, I mean, there are budget battles all the time. Our most recent budget battles have been more severe, of course, than, than average. And, you know, every now and then there are efforts to cut whole wings out of the National Science Foundation, just close them down, for example. Uh, and so far, at least, those, those battles have been more heat than light, and they were, I think, a lot of kind of political jockeying, but maybe not a... Um, maybe not quite as serious a threat as it seemed, but but who knows? And you know, these days the congressional battles are just getting, quite frankly, more <laughs> more difficult to understand. I'll put it that way, and and just more and more um, uncertain. So yeah, I think it is um, a kind of a, a, a difficult time now, uh, where you know, cycle by cycle, you know, if, you, if there'll even be the foundation to apply for your grant, let alone will you will you get your grant, but will there even be the edifice there? And again, so far it's made it through previous battles, but it's it's serious stuff. In your particular case here, and obviously you're teaching the new generation, the new generation of the scientists, the ones who will maybe figure out whether we can get a handle on time travel, on unlimited power, space travel, all this stuff. Do you find your classes getting bigger, smaller? What kind of things are they interested in? 
they're pretty big, and and I think they've they've gotten pretty big, and that's exciting. And these are you know incredibly incredibly gifted, um, passionate you know students. Um, with a lot more energy than I do, so that's, that's a good thing. And so, you know, I think, for example, MIT graduated uh, more physics majors this year than we have um, in something like 30 or more years. So that's clearly wow. the trend is growing. Yeah, it was it Oh, was that's up. excellent. That's good news. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought so. <laughs> well, what are these kids, what's, uh, what's, you know, I mean, are they jazzed uh, by anything in particular right now, or is it just uh, go discipline by discipline, I, I suppose? I know there's a lot of interest uh, in... Uh, you know, places like India and China are, are producing uh, just amazing amounts of very, very uh, talented scientists. I mean, you know, obviously uh, this country has, you know, had a, a lead in, in, you know, in just all these ingenious scientists that, uh, you know, you can point to in, the, in, in you know, in the past. Are we going to be losing our, our lead uh, in the scientific disciplines uh, because of the, you know, increased educational levels of these other countries? Do you think we're falling behind uh, further and further or? Are we holding our own? Uh, it sounds like there may be a, maybe some hope for this country. And, you know, I had a, I, I think I mentioned on a, a prior show, I, I was taking some measurements to put a grill on a, a wall grating. And um, this 22-year-old kid, high school graduate, I asked him to, to write down some uh, numbers for me. And I said, 33 and three quarters. And he said, what, what's, what do you mean three quarters? And I said, well, it's 0.75. And he goes, well, what do you mean? How do you write that? And I, I just, I, I mean, I, I literally almost fell off the ladder. I just could not believe that this high school graduate, 20-something-year-old kid, didn't know what a fraction was. It, it just boggled it's my mind. It's not unusual. I've heard some well, of this, too. Here, it, let's do the break. David Kaiser joins us. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. You expect professional service from your doctor, your accountant, and even the girl who takes your morning coffee order. Why not from your domain registrar, too? Namecheap.com provides stellar service with no sneaky upselling. We offer more features and security options for your website than there are ways to order a latte. And new domains come with WhoisGuard to protect your personal info. At Namecheap.com, you can get your domain for as low as $2.99. Now is a great time to get to know Namecheap.com. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. When making important financial decisions, you should always know the facts. That's why Midas Resources is willing to pay you to read the facts. Midas Resources, a team of hand-picked financial specialists with decades of financial experience who are ready to provide you with state-of-the-art, up-to-date financial services. Midas Resources offers a host of services and stands behind their products. In fact, if you call and order their free Midas report, Midas Resources will pay you. This detailed report will provide you with financial history on the safest and most profitable areas to invest in. If you read the report, Midas Resources will send you a free Walking Liberty Silver Half Dollar. So what are you waiting for? Get the facts and call Midas Resources toll-free at 888-292-2709. That's 888-292-2709. And remember, if you read the Midas report, you'll receive a free Walking Liberty Silver Half Dollar. The 
food storage industry leader has done it again. Introducing FDG Clubs and Survival Bucks from the Freeze-Dry Guy. For over 39 years, the Freeze-Dry Guy has served various government agencies and the private sector with the finest in storable foods and emergency rations. If you've wanted to build emergency food supplies but couldn't afford it, now you can. Go to freezedryguy.com, click on products, and look for the Freeze-Dry Guy Clubs to pay as you go. Now you can build food storage without going into debt. Choose from a payment range of $95 to $450 per month. Our clubs work with everyone's budget. Plus, when you join Freeze Dry Guy Clubs, you'll get additional rewards. For example, this month, get 10% back in survival bucks on all purchases in the Freeze Dry Guy product line, plus free shipping within the lower 48 states on any order amount. Hurry, go to freezedryguy.com or call 866-404-3663. That's freezedryguy.com or call 866-404-3663. The Freeze Dry Guy, the best you can buy. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and re-cleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231 and the Berkey guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey light, the Berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653. Or order online at GoBerkey.com. That's GoBerkey.com today. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com Get in on all the action at forum.theparacast.com So, consider that. Riddle me this. Is our knowledge of the basics of science, math, are we depending so much on the computers, the calculators, that we've lost some of our abilities? David Kaiser, I put that question to you. You know, I, I, like most things, I think it's a mixed bag. I know many of my colleagues at MIT have worried very, very strongly about that, especially, say, in physics or in mathematics. Do our students losing a kind of feel, a kind of intuition for the equations or for a mag- order of magnitude? You know, you, uh, if you're not doing a lot of hands-on stuff, do you just, if it's all just on a computer screen, do you have the same you know, feel for it? And, you know, I've heard pretty convincing counter-arguments that the computers, uh, you know, can open up so many more things, enable these students to do in 10 minutes what a PhD you would have had to you know, spend a month doing before. So, you know, like all things, I, I think it has the pros and cons. Certainly, you know, it is the case that a lot of these students are, are such uh, computer wizards in a very, you know, I think, in a very powerful, productive way that they can just, you know, I used to joke that, I mean, I, I have almost no programming skills at all, so I just hire, you know, an 18-year-old to do it in 10 minutes. It would take me a semester to figure it out. <laughs> so certainly there, there's a great amount of skill and, and real enthusiasm there that, that I think is a great good thing. Is that at the cost of, you know, other ways or older ways of engaging 
trading with the material? Maybe, but I'm not sure it's a net loss. Maybe it's just different. So we're still holding our own out there in the world with all these, uh, I think, what, China is graduating. I forget what the figure was. I think twice as many uh, scientists, uh, basically, than, than we are. I'm not, don't quote me on that one, but I, I remember reading an article and seeing the figure and just being like aghast that uh, it seems like this country is uh, slowly falling behind, but... L- like you said, you've seen a real upsurge in interest in class sizes and bright kids coming up. So maybe there's hope, or are we used to going to continue falling further behind? Well, I think there is hope, and you know the, the numbers game is um, is only part of it. What do those numbers represent? And again, there are you know a very very world class universities and scientists in China, for example, now training great, great people. But when you hear these numbers like 400,000 new graduates this year or that year, you know, it takes a little more effort to sort of unpack what, what's the nature of that training, what are they doing with those skills. Just handing out degrees or just counting degrees, I should say, should be sort of the start of that discussion. And a lot, quite frankly, a lot of times I think um, that becomes the end of the discussion instead. And it actually harkens back to similar debates we had in this country during the Cold War, where this was the Soviet Union graduating more physicists or engineers than we were, and if so, was that you know, going to mean Armageddon? The numbers can become pretty political, and I think there's other questions, we, or additional questions to be asking as well. So that's where, I, again, I, I don't get quite as nervous. There are other indicators that certainly, obviously, the potential, the raw talent in places like China for science is growing rapidly. Look at the number of you know, highly cited articles in the literature. Those things are growing very rapidly. So yeah, there are ways to say there, things are changing. I don't think we're, I don't think we're out, out of the count just yet. We have to look also about what we need to do in the future to encourage this kind of research. Maybe cover more about what these guys are doing today in terms of their cutting-edge developments. What are these guys up to now? We, we kind of talked a little bit about Jack Sarfati and I think Nick Herbert, but how about the other uh, members of uh, your fun, your fun uh, fundamentalist physics group characters? Sure. You know, they, they've traveled lots of uh, different roads. And so where, where they went from Berkeley was as sort of um, revealing to me, as interesting as, as what brought them there. So some of them have remained in sort of mainstream physics. So Henry Stapp has been a senior staff scientist this whole time at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. A very well-respected kind of mainstream scientist with broad interests, and, and he's not afraid to ask un- uncomfortable questions about quantum theory and consciousness. But you know, he's had a, a paying job, and he publishes in the right journals. He's, he has a, a solid reputation within the field. You're John Clauser, the, the experimental physicist who did that very first laboratory test of Bell's theorem back in 1972. Uh, he also has done you know extremely well in terms of reputation. He just won this prestigious prize last year called the Wolf Prize in physics. He shared it with Anton. Zeilinger and Alain Aspect from Paris, and that's often seen as a kind of, you know, um, one step shy of the Nobel Prize, and really amazing, and I, I'd say very well-deserved recognition. On the other hand, you know, he's never had a regular sort of academic position in physics this whole time. To this day, he runs a very sophisticated laboratory out of his garage, and he's able to get research funding grants from wow. National Institutes of Health, for example, to do medical imaging. He's gotten patents, and he's, he's a brilliant guy. He's incredibly productive, but he, he, he had to make his own way. You know, others um, still survive mostly or flourish on sort of you know private donations. Uh, I always joke that uh, they're like Galileo in the Renaissance. Like the de Medici's will pay them. Uh, they'll have their very wealthy, generous patrons. They'll do their their work and it'll be on you know on someone else's dime. And uh, and that's that sort of private patronage model has worked. You know, for some of these folks for a long time. And others you know, became best-selling authors. They were able to live off their kind of royalties from the books that allowed them to keep, keep these other flames going, keep the torch alive. And so certainly for Jeff Copper, you know, has been, I think, the most successful as an author of this group. He followed up the success 
of the Tao of Physics with a series of other books. He's still writing, still active. Uh, and I think uh, some of those books became so wildly successful that, you know, commercially, that he, he was uh, in, a, in a safe spot. And, and, you know, Fred Allen Wolf and Nick Herbert have also been able to basically stay afloat or, or more so, largely on the basis of their writing. And a few others became uh, entrepreneurs. They started their own consulting companies. One of the founders of the group, George Weissman, actually began an import company for Tibetan herbal remedies for a while, that kind of thing. So uh, they've been um, creative in other directions. <laughs> brain, brain tea. Yeah. yeah we, we, we all need some brain tea. Hey, that's an interesting question there about cutting-edge science. One of the things we're looking at are some ways to enhance our memory, and not just to deal with Alzheimer's or stuff like that, but enhance our memory, kind of make the gray matter more functional. Some people yeah, say we use only... 10% of our brain power now. There was a movie out called Limitless where Bradley Cooper plays this character that he takes this injection and suddenly he's using 100% of his brain power. So is that real? I don't know, but if it is, I'd like to, I'd like to know where to get some. It sounds like you know, the, yeah, the really. new um, <laughs> uh, Planet of the Apes movie as well might be pretty similar in, in its premise, at least. That's all about trying to deal with Alzheimer's and a scientist tested on the ape, and that's the wrong thing to do. Because right. the ape is played by Andy Circus, who, of course, is known as Golem in <laughs> Lord of the Rings. It really is. He was the performance artist who actually created the first ape. Oh, interesting. Well, how about Cowboys and Aliens? We, have, you, have you seen that yet, uh, Gene or David? You know, I haven't. I saw the preview only. It looked like fun, but I haven't seen it. It's interesting. You know, Andrew pointed out to me that uh, if you kind of take an equation from what we consider to be the uh, time period between now, uh, the Big Bang and now, that some of the earliest planets that suns, uh, solar systems, um, have had about 9 billion, billion years to get smart and to develop uh, advanced space-faring technology. Well, now he's saying, no, no, no. Here, why don't you say it? Okay, so the universe is... Hi, everybody. The universe is 13.7 billion years old, give or take. Uh, we now know that the earliest stars started to shine a fraction of a billion years after the bang, about 360 million, I think it was. Uh, David wouldn't know for sure. It took us as Homo sapiens sapiens about 4 billion years to get smart from zero. And so if you put it all together with the age of the universe, you could say that the oldest smart civilization and that we could envisage would be about 9 billion years old. And that's quite an interesting number if you're interested in UFOs and that sort of thing, is it not? In a sense, that would be enough of a time to sort of uh, get here and back or something like that? Or to, I don't know, totally manipulate entire galaxies. Uh, who knows uh, the level of technology that you could develop in that, that amount of time. Uh, I think uh, Michio Kaku came up with a with a rating system of uh, sophistication and uh, ability to, um, I guess, impact uh, their reality. And, we'll uh, go into the rating system and the reality. David <laughs> Kaiser joins us. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Pericast. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats, I can't even list them. Download now to see 
see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. Attention gardeners, this is an urgent GCN self-reliance update. GCN has just discovered a new bioactive superfood for garden plants, flowers, and herbs. It's called Protogrow, and it's so effective at producing rapid plant growth that it seems to almost force plants to grow like crazy under practically any soil and light conditions. Now, here's the best part for our listeners who garden for self-reliance. Protogrow's unique blend of sea nutrients maximizes mineral uptake and dramatically increases bloom set, creating maximum plant growth in minimum time. Protogrow works by providing geometric keys which have the capacity to actually unlock the genetic code for nutritional uptake in plants. Protogrow's full-spectrum plant fertility means fruits and vegetables with extraordinary taste and up to 10 times the nutritional value. And if you want to double or triple the potency of herbs or wheatgrass, you can. If you want to grow nutritionalized superfoods with non-hybrids, it's now easy. GCN listeners who want to grow dirt-cheap superfoods should visit the Protogrow website at growlikecrazy.com. That's www.growlikecrazy.com or call 877-327-0365. That's 877-327-0365. If you drive for a living, you don't get paid to stop or wait in line. Keep your wheels moving with prepass. Bypass way stations. Fly by port of entry facilities. Stay moving at highway speed while the guy without prepass waits in line. Save time, save money. Call 888-401-PASS to try prepass free. That's 888-401-PASS. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget, CrossbreedHolsters.com. You know that drinking pure, high-alkaline water is one of the most important factors in maintaining high-energy and vibrant health. And most experts agree that the water you drink should be at a pH level of 8 or higher. AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops, available only at AlkaVision.com, combine a unique formula of most alkaline minerals available. AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops alkalize your water, reading the body of harmful toxins and acid, helping you to regain your energy and health. Alkalizing your water by simply adding 10 drops of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops helps the body to rid itself of acidic waste increases oxygen, and raises the pH of your body to optimal levels. And bacteria and viruses cannot survive in an alkaline high pH environment. Order your bottle of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops for only $29.95 at AlkaVision.com. That's A-L-K-A-Vision.com. Or call 269-409-1776. 269-409-1776. Alkalize your body. Supercharge your health at AlkaVision.com. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Ted Phillips listening to the Paracast, and it's as good as it gets, believe me. 
We continue with David Kaiser. Last two segments exploring cutting edges of science and what all those hippies did. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. So the question here, could we have today a group of 2011 hippies who maybe even now are trying to figure out what science will be like for the next 50 years? I think we could. And You know, I end the book in the epilogue by saying is, I think there's a, a wider safety net this time around than than uh, than in the 70s for for people for ideas that are just a little bit further from from mainstream uh, their whole institutes are kind of brick and mortar institutes that are devoted to uh, ideas like the foundations of quantum theory quantum cosmology and all the, all the rest um, there are also sort of internet based funding agencies for lack of a better word so they're not even face to face but there are you know private donations that can then be parceled out um, there's a group called uh, FQXI the Fundamental Questions uh, Institute and they give grants basically you know modest sized grants to people uh, some of whom are university professors others of whom are independent scholars is the kind of euphemism for folks on their own and uh, you know there, there's a way to to, um, to get that stuff to keep it keep the people asking the questions to make sure they're not really um, kind of lost and also, of course, in the Internet age, to, to, uh, to get the stuff to circulate. So a lot of garbage can circulate on the Internet. There's no way to stop that. But it's not impossible to get uh, ideas uh, circulating and, and bouncing off other folks and interacting there, too. So I think, I think there, there is room for groups like the one I wrote about uh, these days, and they might not be quite as, uh, have quite as hard a time with it, quite frankly, you know, getting resources, getting the word out, finding, meeting up, even if only in cyberspace, with like-minded folks, and so yeah, I think I think there's um, I think I think that continues. Uh, Andrew has a question here. Hold on. Yeah, um, there's been a recent paper. I wanted you to comment on it, if you possibly could, in uh, on the fundamentals of, of quantum mechanics. And I do please excuse me. I cannot remember the full names of the authors, but there's a Stephanie X, very attractive young lady from Australia, or I think it is, and a chap from Cambridge again, whose name I don't remember. And the title of the paper is something like "Non-Locality and Quantum Uncertainty." And essentially, they found a very deep connection. This was published only in the last three to six months on Archive. Um, whether it will make it to FISREV D letters or something, I don't know. But uh, it was called Non-Locality and Quantum Uncertainty, relating non-locality to Heisenberg's uncertainty. Now, it's a very deep result, which seems to have been well-received. I wonder if you would comment on it. Do you think it's pushed the, the field of understanding the, the, the roots of quantum uh, mechanics further forward for us, if you're familiar with it? Well, unfortunately, you know, I, I don't know this paper in particular, so I, I can't say either way. Uh, but it's certainly an example of, of this notion that there are now lots and lots of people all, all over the world who, who are you know, concerned, as members of this group that I write about were concerned um, in the past, with this sort of deep structure, the deep foundations of quantum theory. Uh, and, and nowadays, you know, there, it, one can get those papers published more readily. They can circulate pretty easily. So I don't know this particular one, but it's an example of that kind of activity that, that really has a kind of foothold back at the table again. It's no longer kind of laughed out of court as an activity, you know. Yeah, it almost sounds like we're getting to a point where, where we're starting to see unification of, of, of theories that, that tend to be almost like we're, we're reweaving the, the strands of the rope and we're starting to really get closer to some fundamental, fundamental uh, science at the, at the core, you know, the connecting point between a lot of these, uh, these questions. And, you know, just the whole idea of the CERN project and the Large Hadron Collider and the success that they've had, I, I think now they're going to go up to full power, if I'm not uh, mistaken, I th yeah, in about a year. 
what any ideas of what we could expect from a full power uh, test and uh, colliding particles at CERN? Well, I mean, so again, one is certainly uh, to be hoped for is um, really definitive evidence if it's to be had for this Higgs boson, what we talked about before. This one sort of missing character is one central but yet uh, as yet unseen piece of the puzzle in how yeah, you know, matter holds together, so-called, yes. Um, so, so that is, I'd say, a pretty likely uh, to be hoped for development. And then, you know, all kinds of things. So it could be there are reasons to, to suspect that one might be able to catch um, real glance, real evidence for extra dimensions through exotic ways that particles would behave, momenta would be measured and so on um, in these exotic interactions. So all of a sudden, the LHC could, it's a long shot, but it's not impossible, could be telling us about you know, the, the most basic structure of space-time, even beyond the sort of little particles that dance around within it. Uh, or in, a, in an exciting but maybe a little bit more mundane way, it could hopefully be finding candidates for this dark matter stuff, particles of the sort we've never seen before, perhaps because we never were looking at the right energy scale until uh, we're able to now, uh, or signs for other kind of exotic symmetries or notions about how what governs these, these subatomic forces that have so far really only been hypothesized and there's been no solid evidence really either way for often for, for decades. And so a lot of people are excited saying we should, no matter what we find, it'll be new. It'll be beyond what we already know. Uh, and a, a lot of them could be, hopefully, could be very, you know, very loaded pointers. They could say it's really this road and not the other one for moving forward. In every era that we study science, we kind of think we've got it pretty well under control now. We know kind of what's going on with the universe. And then 50 years later, they seem like a bunch of Neanderthals. <laughs> you know, we find out that every piece that far, of energy, Gene, but pardon? Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Homo sapien, not without the sapien sapien. <laughs> Man, Whatever. the wise, the, the wiser. The point being that we all tend to think that we have a handle on what's happening in science, and then we find something else that shows, hey, we barely knew what was going on. So do you think there's a point where we could know, ever know, all that there is to know? It's kind of a simplistic question, but one that people do ask. And I think the answer is no. And I think for the reason you were saying before, uh, I mean, I think you're right that we have been, I would say, surprised and maybe uh, humbled. Maybe we haven't been humbled enough given what, what we should have been. You know, time, like you say, time and time again, you don't have to go back all that far. Uh, so it's not often, it's not only that we find out we were sort of wrong about something we deep, deeply believed and dearly held, but that most of what we were worried about was sort of becomes irrelevant. I mean, it's not neither right nor wrong so much as a different, the wrong question to be asking. It's that kind of upheaval that, that really does happen. It happens every few uh, decades, if not, you know, uh, centuries, that kind of scale at the very least. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, that's incredibly exciting. On the other hand, you say, well, you know, what are we worrying about so deeply now that might turn out to be a non-problem? Not that we'll solve it. It just won't even be a, a problem anymore when seen from the vantage point of some new later set of ideas. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be the one saying, we've, look, we've, we've got it. We're done. <laughs> I don't think that was ever going to be a winning position. That, that, remind, that reminds me of the, uh, the head of the U.S. Patent Office in the late 1890s and the famous quote that everything that can be invented has been invented. So, <laughs> Lord so I always wonder right. about the 6,000 patents that Apple and some other companies just bought right. because they were newly invented. 
But I won't get into the situation here, whether patents are being granted for trivial inventions or such broad-based inventions that, of course, anybody is in violation. That gets to be almost ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, let's go back, since we mentioned Einstein, and now a lot of people looking to go beyond Einstein, and maybe he says, yeah, of course, the speed of light is supposedly the maximum, but we can find tricks around that. So after all these years, how good was Einstein's vision? Well, I, I'd say it was, it, was, it was awfully good. And so Einstein, it turns out, was human. He was wrong a lot of the time, like every other human ever has been. Uh, and I don't think that's a, a, a great um, fault of his to, to have to admit that. On the other hand, you know, just about a century later, um, uh, or really, you know, coming up on a century since general relativity, well over a century since special relativity, coming up on a century in quantum theory, I mean, uh, we're still living in many ways in Einstein's world. And we still think about things largely in ways that he had encouraged or, or taught us to. And uh, there aren't many other people for whom we can say that. That's an amazing accomplishment. Uh, there, we've been able to find things in his ideas that he hadn't even anticipated, but that the structure, the, you know, the, the, the fabric was there, and it's led us to discover even new things that, that were kind of latent. And, you know, it's, um, uh, he wasn't right about every last thing. No one is, but, but what he gave us is, <laughs> has been well worth it. It's been an, an, an astonishing uh, picture, and I think actually a very exciting one. So much to learn. So little time. David Kaiser's our guest. Chris O'Brien's the co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I had already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Big Berkey water filters are in high demand. Storable foods are also in high demand. BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com has always kept our focus on the Berkey water filter products. But increasingly, our customers have been asking for storable foods. After months of research, BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com now offers great-tasting, long-lasting, storable foods. These ready-to-eat meals are packed in airtight nitrogen pouches. All you do is just add water. And because they're sealed so well, they come with a 25-year shelf life. Combine our Berkey water filters, which are powerful enough to purify treated, untreated, or even stagnant pond water with our storable foods, and you have a winning combination. Remember, we offer free shipping on every order over $50, and GCN listeners receive 5% off all ceramic filter systems. Visit BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY. That's BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY today. Congratulations to our friends at eFoodsDirect.com. 
In August, they celebrate 30 years in the long-term storable food business. To celebrate, eFoodsDirect.com is offering the lowest price ever on their one-year freedom food supply, even less than the price in 1981. For a limited time, you get 30% off a one-year freedom supply, which provides three hearty meals per day for one adult. The freedom supply includes a large variety of fruits and vegetables, dairy, legumes, grains, sprouting seeds, and more. Plus, you get a generous supply of their quick-fix meals. This is the most complete, extensive, and affordable unit they have ever offered. Call 800-409-5633 or go to eFoodsDirect.com forward slash Alex and get 30% off a one-year food supply. If you have ever considered getting a supply, now is the time. Call 800-409-5633. That's 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com forward slash Alex. Fight back this cold and flu season with the world's best garlic extract, Ali C. Why Ali C? Because it helps your body fight viruses, bacteria, and fungi. Ali C has been scientifically proven in double-blind studies using low doses to greatly reduce the number, severity, and duration of common colds. Ali C contains 300 milligrams of stabilized allicin, the active ingredient in crushed garlic. Studies show Ali C is effective against MRSA, bacterial, fungal, and viral infections. One tablet of Ali C has the equivalent of 40 cloves of garlic. Ali C supports your body's resistance to all types of conditions and can help lower high blood pressure and high cholesterol. So boost your body's resistance to infection with nature's best garlic extract, Ali C. For more information and to order Ali C, call 877-888-7126 or go to garlichealthproducts.com. That's 1-877-888-7126 or go to garlichealthproducts.com for your Ali C today. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast. We're back. One more session with David Kaiser. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien. Chris, does your friend have any more questions? Yeah, Andrew. David, I think, think um, th- th- there's a sort of a paradigm that's rather a bit meta about physics. You know, is, it, is physics fashion? By that, I mean this. Um, if you really widen it out to extra dimensions found by the LHC. Um, if you say that I have something that's even deeper than Emmy Noether's symmetry theorem, which says that for every <clears throat> conservation law, there's a corresponding symmetry principle, absolutely, fundamentally deep thing to say about the universe. Somebody comes along next week and says, well, I can actually go deeper than Emmy Noether and say, and, and say something much more fundamental than that, you know, which sort of like undercuts the what we call the fundamentals and goes even deeper and sets out a substrate upon which a lot more things can be understood. It, it renders Newton even more archaic. It renders Einstein um, passe and so forth. It seems to me that we do have this sort of fashionable 
aspect of physics, which, you know, is our current, uh, the zeitgeist of, of general relativity and quantum mechanics. Do you really think that zeitgeist has got any sense of per true permanence in a large sense? Fast forward 500 years and look at the exponential rate of the increase of knowledge. Do, do we really believe the QM and GR will, will be around as, as, as paradigms in, say, 500 years, Do well, it's a great question, and I think the answer is no, but that's not a reason for despair, at least as I see it, in the sense that, you know, we still teach our students Newton's mechanics, right? That's, you know, not 500 years since Newton, but several hundred, uh, and so we no longer think the universe runs exactly as Newton had taught us, but the um, the way of analyzing things we can observe that Newton had bequeathed is still unbelievably helpful and powerful, and our newer ideas have to, you know, kind of incorporate those results even as they move beyond them. And I think that is uh, likely to be what's going to happen with both quantum mechanics and general relativity. I don't think either of them is necessarily the final word, certainly general relativity. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons from, from within the structure of, of general relativity to say this, this probably isn't everything, right? This might be pointing to where it itself might break down. But any other, the next grander, more amazing, you know, strange uh, concoction is, is likely to incorporate at least the things that we have really wrestled with hard about Einstein's relativity. So they, those might not be any more the, the fundamental, you know, uh, um, uh, bedrock answer for why things behave the way they do, but it would be a pretty good account for why they do and might have a, a kind of underneath reasoning that, that would, on which that would rest, much like we'd say with, say, Newton's laws today or Maxwell's equations for electricity and magnetism. And we still, you know, MIT students still all the time will buy T-shirts with Maxwell's equations on, on the front, which I love. They always wear them to my class. And, uh, you know, we'd say, oh, Maxwell's equations, we now know about quantum theory and electrons and charges, things that the Maxwell didn't even know about. And yet the equations are both worth putting on a T-shirt and worth teaching for semesters at a time because they're incredibly powerful. And they've captured something about the world, even if they're not the final, final word. So, I mean, indeed, I mean, we have this incredible checks and balances um, web in place now that just wasn't there 100 years ago. So every new thing that we posit has to pass all the tests that we've thought of since that time. And as we go on in time, would you not agree that the checks and balances are a very, very good guide to where to go next? But I see also a dark side to that. Do you not also that perhaps it might be inhibitory in, in terms of making large leaps. Well, I see what you mean. And so that was part of what I was interested in, in writing this book, actually, is, you know, when does the mainstream um, rule out questions as somehow, you know, um, outre, as not, not questions worth asking? I think that's, that becomes dangerous. I, I do think that's right. Or at least, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to see that. Uh, that can be overdone. And that's where I think uh, groups like the one I wrote about in Berkeley in the 70s, you know, they were no longer beholden to those kind of, we might say, fashions or, or the opinions of the mainstream. They carved out this parallel universe and then and kind of crawled back in. That level of um, the out-of-the-box thinking that I think is, is better supported now than back then. That's where I say there's, there's a wider safety net now for ideas that are not necessarily, in that sense, fashionable or, or going along with what most people already believe. We have, I think, really good reasons to believe what we do, but let's not you know, lose sight of the fact that these are likely to be uh, you know, upended, or at least could be upended as well. And so in that sense, yeah, I think you're right, that there can be a kind of taste questions. That, that doesn't smell like a good topic, don't work on it. And that, I think, could be a very difficult um, situation to overcome for you know, young scientists starting out. Let me just ask a fast question here as we're getting to the tail end of this program, and that is false research. We hear about it occasionally where people either claim to have scientific credentials or don't, 
or they falsify the research. They try to take shortcuts. How do you have checks and balances in the system to overcome this tendency? You're right, and it happens, um, uh, I would say, at least as much now as in other periods from, from any way that it's hard to get good measures on the frequency of these things, but there's, there is reason to believe that we haven't you know, uh, licked that system. I, part of, I think we can understand some of the motivations for why it happens, and those motivations um, are probably not going to go away anytime soon. It has to do with things like, you know, uh, like we talked about before. Well, ego, but also, I would say, even more mundane, difficulty of getting research grants, you know, the kind of rat race of, of trying to get, um, get, your, get the resources you need to ask the hard questions. Uh, there can certainly be temptations to cut corners. That obviously doesn't make it right. It also can make it pretty hard to catch. I mean, people will say, oh, we'll just rely on peer review. Peer review, of course, is fallible. There was that famous case from just about a decade ago at Bell Labs where a young researcher had to retract, I think, at least 20 articles that were published not just in any old peer-reviewed journals, but in Science, Nature, Physical Review Letters, the most Ouch. prestigious, most carefully vetted journals on the planet. And these were not one or two, but I think on the order of 20 of them that were formally retracted, something like that. So it's not you know, peer review is, is important, but it, that's not the panacea either. So I think you know we can understand the part of the kind of sociology behind how it might happen. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't have a good answer other than, you know, uh, uh, obviously peer review, obviously careful uh, vetting and a kind of openness in, in data sets and all that, which might, might go some part of the way. But it's, I don't think we're going to lick it. I think that's, that's, you know, I don't think it's a huge problem. I don't want to exaggerate saying every, it's behind every corner, but it's, you know, it's there and it hasn't gone away. And by the yeah, same but- token, the availability of grants in certain areas of research that kind of precludes other areas unless there's a bunch of hippies sitting in a coffee shop in San Francisco and thinking about the future. Well, I mean, this goes back to this question of fads and, and, and fashions. Uh, and, you know, there are kind of tastemakers in science, uh, believe it or not. And so you're right. You want to make sure that those are um, not sort of uh, really cutting off ideas or people uh, who, who obviously have things to contribute, even if they might not be in that same direction. Well, what's in the future for you? I'm sure this book is being well received, and and uh, do you have any other books in the works, or any other literary projects that you're working on, or what's what's on your event horizon now? Yeah, so a couple things. I mean, I, on the physics side, I, I'm indeed still working on the cosmology and actually trying to play with an idea that might combine the Higgs boson with a, a modification of Einstein's relativity to understand the early universe. I don't think it's, it's the best answer, but it's, it's intriguing. And then in terms of books, you know, there's a project I'm, I'm working on that I've been really enjoying. It's a, a political history of Einstein's gravity. Let's understand general relativity as, like these hippies, as always embedded in times and place. The people who are spending their, their, their lives studying it are, you know, interrupted by war. They're involved in the Cold War. They're involved in all kinds of things. And it's a way of understanding you know, science and context in a very kind of immediate, um, uh, personal way. And that stretches over really the entire 20th century. So that's a book I've actually really been enjoying as well. Uh, another book on sort of the politics of, of science policy and how do, we, how do we handle things like challenges from either the Soviet Union or more recently China and India about these um, you know, numbers of degrees granted per year and that kind of thing. There's, there's a, how does that shape what we think science should be like or what we want to train our students to do? So that's another book that I'm, that I'm chipping away well, at. Excellent, worthy, worthy uh, topics. Uh, much luck and success. And again, if uh, those books are anything like uh, How the Hippies Save Physics, I'll be reading them. That's for sure. I really did enjoy the book. And you know, it was really uh, kind of you uh, to come on a lowly paranormal show and and, and talk some science. And uh, I was very grateful to have Andrew Palfram in here. Uh, 
who was quite the scientist in his own right. And uh, it's been a real pleasure, uh, David, and thank you so much for, for being on the show. And I think Gene will agree that this, uh, this is going to be an exciting episode, and we're going to generate quite a bit of uh, banter, I'm sure, on the Paracast forums, which is located at forum.theparacast.com for all you, uh, you know, future posters. Uh, let's get a thread going on this show. This is going to be a lot of fun. The book, of course, is called How the Hippies Save Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. The guest has been David Kaiser, professor at MIT. David, thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I, I appreciate uh, your invitation. The Paracast. Featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.